The following podcast is proudly brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use the link in the description and use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen. And also use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off windows, keys, and die shrink to get 3% off everything else on the website at cdkeyoffer.com. Now on with the show. Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today I am joined by, well, it's actually, I think it's been a while since I've had an anonymous guest on, even one that was almost anonymous. Um, the tech consultant decided to just, you know, he said, you know, I, I'm late enough in my career, I have nothing to hide. And, you know, but this one, this one took a bit of back and forth to uh, establish exactly how we wanted to do this episode because. I, I guess what we'll say just right in the beginning here is, you know, your views are your own. Uh, they don't represent a, uh, anything of the greater body you work for. But I probably should just stop and just say, um, tell us who you are and as much or as little as you can about what you do and who you work for. Yeah, so uh, I'm an engineer, um, electrical engineer, and I work for the U.S. federal government. Um, that's about as far as I'm allowed to say. Mm hmm. But um, what I can tell you more is my background of things I've worked on, maybe not specifically what I do for work currently or what mm -hmm. my position is currently. But um, I think there's definitely a lot there to work with in terms of having a, a good conversation. Um, and one of the things I told you was it's not so much that I, you know, couldn't get the permission mm -hmm. to reveal who I am or what I do. But with that comes with a lot of strings of controlling this whole interview of what questions are being asked and what are the answers getting approval, like literally yeah. line by line on what we mm -hmm. talk about, yeah. which at that point, is it a conversation? <laughs> right. And so that's, I don't think that's fun for anybody. So, so here we are, you know, it sounds shadowy and cryptic, but it's, it's, it's better for it, honestly. So, so what can you tell us about specifically what your background is educationally, professionally, you know, what types of, professional work you've done maybe not the specific work but like what types of systems and expertise do you have yeah so uh, i have a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering uh, master's as well and partially i've completed a phd program um in in undergrad i focused well i'll start off by saying uh, electrical engineering is a wide field so mm -hmm. you know in undergrad you're kind of they kind of throw everything at you and you, you can kind of decide what you like, you know, you can kind of move more into computer engineering type things. You can move into power systems engineering, you know, it's, it's, it's really wide. Um, where I kind of leaned into was analog instrumentation, um, make, making measurements, measurement science basically is, is kind of the way to think about that. And I worked on uh, some satellite instrumentation at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked on CubeSat programs. So CubeSat programs are, for those who don't know, um, they're pretty popular with the university. I think they're a lot popular now. I think most most people, if you're paying attention to space stuff, you've, you've heard mm -hmm. of CubeSat programs. You may have heard of the NASA Elana program. 
which is a rideshare program that NASA does where they'll select uh, certain university satellites and launch them up with a with a payload. But the idea is they're launching up these big expensive uh, payloads anyway, and it's it's really expensive. So to make access to space um, more cheap for for universities or, mm-hmm. or smaller companies, obtainable that, to actually yeah. do this research in that setting. Yeah, because microgravity and and the vacuum of space, you know, um, or even what's considered, you know, kind of the edge of atmosphere type stuff. Mm-hmm. If you want to study that stuff, you know, there, there's plenty of of good companies and engineers out there that probably have good ideas um, and universities of experiments to do, and it's it's prohibitive to to be able to afford that that initial launch vehicle. And so you've also told me that you've had a lot of experience or at the very least education and put a lot of thought into things involving FPGAs, like thinking of rendering and pixels as more of a data compression or, you know, a data transfer problem. And that people keep thinking it of, I think people keep thinking of graphics cards like they're muscle cars, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, if you're from an engineering background, well, I'll just say this. Um, I, I think the word I threw at you early on was information theory is the way mm-hmm. I think about it. So uh, it's definitely not unique to to say, oh, graphics cards and rendering is information theory. Um, everything digital is information theory. Um, representing digital circuits as zeros and ones, that's, that's information theory. Um, he kind of had this uh, theory, this communication theory of you have this data you want, there's a transmitter, there's a channel that it goes over, there's noise in that channel, and then there's a receiver at the other end. Mm-hmm. And that sounds kind of obvious to us now, but rendering is is no different. Um, we're working from a model, a, a computer model, and we're trying to get that to the screen. And so the the GPU in this case is making these calculations from this model to decide what what pixel to show you right what what Mm -hmm. at at the end of it it's what color pixel do i show you right and how does that relate back to this model um which i think half of the work going into i I think what what we're talking about literally right now me and you is going to be the major battleground for like for example lovelace versus rdna3 right like i think you know, it's no secret that I'm working on a Lovelace leak right now. In fact, it'll probably be out before this podcast goes live. And a major point I make is that, you know, I think they're both NVIDIA and AMD will be close enough where it's going to come down to almost the non-raw performance, right? Now, part of that is cost, power consumption, amount of VRAM you have. I think that's going to be a major deciding factor for them, and they will both do what they can to give themselves an advantage since they're so close. But I also think that another part of it, obviously, for NVIDIA, and I think people underestimate it for AMD, is going to be how efficiently they can turn those teraflops and bandwidth into the correct-looking pixel that the gamer wants to see. Yeah, and and I think you're hitting it right on the head. And this is kind of the conversation that, at least going into this, that I wanted to have was this idea of information theory and utility, mm-hmm. essentially. What I actually want to do then is take a step back and kind of establish, you know, what got you into it? When did you really get into PC gaming? I think 
you know, me and you have talked a bit now. I think we actually have a ton in common in our gaming history. I think people, whatever this means, like us, have really been PC gaming since forever. But when did you really start, you know, kind of PC gaming here and there? And when did you really become what I would call an enthusiast where, you know, if this was a decade ago, you were probably reading Tom's Hardware. Now you're probably watching TechTubers. Like, when did you really become one of those people that kind of knows what's coming, the entire lineup, debates with people online, puts, I mean, I've thought about this, I've almost wondered too much thought into price performance, like if I was paid per hour, how much I think about building my desktop, (laughs) would it have been more efficient for me to just put less thought and gotten what I, you know, I almost wonder that, but like, when did you really become an enthusiast? When was it fun to look into that stuff for you, you know? Sure, Uh, well, I'll start by saying that uh, there was always a a computer available to me growing up. Mm -hmm. I think you you and I are probably about the same age, um, probably have pretty similar perspectives about how we grew up and the technology around us and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, when we were growing up, um, you know, having a computer in the household wasn't a given. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was still expensive for most families. Um, at least I knew growing up when I was in school and said, hey, I have a computer at home. Not all my peers did, but... Probably the first computer I played games on was actually a Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. My my dad had a had a Commodore 64, and um, when I was really young, I remember playing you know games on it. You could pop Atari 2600 cartridges in it. You could load up those old floppy disks, and you know we had like Frogger and and like those old classic games, mm-hmm. and they were definitely old at the time I was <laughs> I was experiencing them. But that was kind of my first interactions with the computer later we we ended up getting um a much more contemporary home desktop it was like a a windows 95 machine Mm -hmm. and that particular machine came with um an ati 3d rage card in it Mm -hmm. or it was uh embedded on the motherboard this was a, a pentium pentium class uh desktop and it came with the game uh mech warrior 2 which was kind of the big 3D title at the time. And, you know, I was, I was still pretty young, so I didn't really understand, you know, how this computer makes things appear on screen, right? But watching my dad and brother play that game, I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. Like, mm-hmm. I had been exposed to video games before. I mean, we had home consoles, NES, SNES, that kind of thing, Sega Genesis. But I'd never seen something 3D like that. Well, so what was the first, I mean, maybe Radeon or even, you know, I guess, um, I'm sorry, uh, like Voodoo versus NVIDIA. Like, what, when was the first lineup you just remember the entire lineup? <laughs> like, that's I think that's a good way to kind of ask when you were like a true enthusiast, because for me... I knew half of some lineups, but man, once we got to like the GTX 200 and especially by Fermi, I just knew every card that was on the market. That's pretty similar to to my experience. So uh, moving on from that desktop, I mean, I continued playing PC games. You know, I, I played a ton of StarCraft. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that was one of the things I really loved about PC was there's no shortage of strategy type games. Mm-hmm. And um, as we got newer home computers, I... Myself and my dad, we always uh, would buy a, a new video card and, and slap it in there and so that it, we could play more games on it. Um, so I didn't go and build my first 
first gaming PC from the ground up, probably till I was in high school sometime. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess this is a, a good point to mention this. My dad actually works for Intel. Mm-hmm. And uh, they actually have something called a, a chip loaner program where they will give you a chip to use in a, in a home-built PC. They don't give it to you outright. They they loan it to you. But as far as I know, they've never asked for any of them back. Um, I wonder, have you ever, <laughs> you know, in the comment sections, you always see people go, my uncle works at NVIDIA is the classic joke. <laughs> like why someone would know something. Yeah. You, you could have claimed your dad works at Intel. Did you ever try to flex on someone arguing with them in a forum by saying that, I wonder? No, no. Uh, yeah, because people who actually have family members that work at these companies don't just say it online usually. Yeah, um, pretty much. Uh, there wasn't really a lot of insider information there. It's like, it's like my my dad. Um, he's not an engineer, so he works the he works the manufacturing floor, so mm-hmm. the actual lithographic process piece of it. So mm-hmm. he's in the clean room uh, working with those machines. You know, at some point he said I outpaced him in my understanding of of the stuff, and he's in there building the things, right? So, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, in the uh, appreciable, like conversational way, like he's actually helping make them. It's like, yeah, I think a lot of people forget, like, especially when I like do some of these leaks where I talk to some sources, like, like Radeon or something, and it's like, well, how don't they know this or this? It's like they don't need to know any more than the part of even maybe the IP block they're working on in that graphics card, man. Right. They don't need to know how the whole thing works. They need to do their job. And in fact, it might make them do their job worse if they know too much. Right. So, um, so yeah, I built my first computer. I think that was the first time I researched all the parts. I think my dad said, Hey, I can get you this chip. Pick, pick the parts around it. Mm-hmm. So this is my first time looking at like, Oh, uh, this motherboard, this chipset, you know, this cooler, um, this graphics card. And uh, that was the first time I was probably really, really paying attention to. to Which generation of on. graphics cards? Uh, so the, in that machine, we ended up putting in um, an ATI X1900 XT. Okay. That yeah. one's pretty popular. Yeah. And that was a, at the time, that card was the card to get. Mm-hmm. Um I remember the feat at the time was you could play Oblivion on it. And, at 30 frames, and, right? And it, yeah, at above 30 frames at 10 at 1080p or, you know, uh, approaching those higher resolutions. I think probably back then it was 1600 by 1200. Yeah, was the, I think it was like there's 1600 by 1200. I think there was 1680 by 1050, if I'm remembering yeah, correctly, was right. a popular one at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, it, it could play Oblivion and you could run multi-sample anti-aliasing and uh, what was then called HDR mm-hmm. at the same yeah, time. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people forget, you know, back then, now we're talking about 120 hertz, heck, being in some games on consoles. <laughs> and back then, no, people really were okay with 30 frames per second on average. Really. Yeah, and honestly, depending on the game, I'll I'll still thirty is okay, depending on the game. Mm-hmm. That's like a I'm heavy not, emphasis yeah. on the depending, though. Yeah, like I'm, I'm sixty is better. I'll I'll not gonna argue that sixty is <laughs> quantitatively a better experience. But I mean, there are plenty of games where the experience is fine at thirty. You know, and we're we're kind of talking about how things have evolved here. And I kind of, I want to start pushing the conversation directly into this. I feel like there have been paradigm shifts in 
the way graphics cards have transitioned into like, you know, new types of rendering. And for a while it was 2D and then they were like, oh, this one can do 2D and 3D. And then we went into 3D and 3D just, I think we almost lost track of how much there is this calculation and utility because things just kept getting better so much faster. And like, then we just got laser focused on price performance, especially, and I've pointed this out with a PC perspective crew and they were on broken Silicon and other people that my opinion is price performance got its best when Moore's law died. Like if we're being honest, the best prices for graphics cards were during the 28 nanometer era. Are we going to pretend they weren't, you know, like that is when, and it's because we weren't able to get as much of a performance increase. And so they felt they had to keep the cost exactly the same if they're just going to make a bigger 28 nanometer card. Right. And I think we're starting to shift out of that era again into a new one. Where do you, I, you know, feel free to bring up anything I just said, but also what do you think we're transitioning to now? Is it ray tracing yet? Is it AI? Or is it just another way you would class like the new this new era we're entering of GPUs? Because I do feel like it is a new era. Yeah. So um, I think I think there are parallels happening in graphics right now that have already of things that have already happened in in other types of digital media, and this is where that kind of information theory talk kind of comes from. And so if you look at digital media, uh, let's start with uh, audio, for example. MP3 changed the world. Mm -hmm. And what MP3 did was it's, it started looking at things a little more mathematically in terms of, um, I guess the way to put it is, the sample rate and bit depth, that's just the data rate, okay? That's just how fast you can move data. But what information are you actually trying to send? Mm -hmm. You know, we're capturing a lot of extra information by sampling that high. Human hearing starts to roll off at higher frequencies. You know, there's there's other things in that recording that you don't want, like noise. So the idea was, could you look at a signal and only extract and encode the things about it that you intend on transferring? Mm-hmm. And so MP3 is what's called uh, a psychoacoustic encoding. Um, it does two things. It looks, it looks at the signal in terms of what is its content? What are the features that I want to actually save? So MP3 will analyze uh, the encoder. It'll analyze the audio in a signal mm -hmm. to make decisions about what parts of, what features in that audio do I actually want to spend time encoding? And that's because, what, you know, this MP3 encoding is. And you would argue this is just a very similar problem that DLSS and FSR are trying to solve. Yeah. So um, from, from an inf information theory standpoint, you only want to save data that you can't predict. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that, that's, a, that's one of the fundamental things about communication and compression is if you can predict it, then you don't need to send it. And so that's kind of what MP3 did. It it started to look at what parts of audio are important and let's only save those and let's encode those in a very frugal kind of uh, economic manner. And But let's take it a step further. Let's look at the perception of human hearing. What parts of audio are important to a human being in saying this sounds good or this, it, this has the fidelity that I perceive? Turns out there's a lot of stuff you can throw away. 
because mm-hmm. we don't even hear it. And so MP3, you know, you go from these huge 700, 800 megabyte CDs for 80 minutes of music to these tiny little files that you can suddenly send over the internet. And that was pretty powerful. Um, we see that now with, you know, those same concepts are used for, for streaming video. You know, the, the streaming revolution, Netflix, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Made which possible. is getting better too but yeah. it wasn't always good and and it was obvious which streaming platforms had more experience i i the, my favorite example that i think everyone can probably start to guess what i'm going to bring up a bad compression is that one game of thrones episode in the oh, last God, season yeah. so, where i was you... like what is this gray banding in the sky this is insane guys this is supposed to be a premium so, service within a year Everything was better on HBO. <laughs> they clearly yeah, so learned their lesson. Th- that that was a comedy of, yeah. So th- I like that you bring up that episode because <laughs> it, it brings up a lot of good examples of how understanding information versus data is different, right? Mm-hmm. You can say, oh, I have a 1080p or a 4K stream, but that doesn't tell you about the information or the actual quality of that stream. Right. That's just the output format of it. That That's a good example of where compression and information theory and human perception all meet. Right. You know, to kind of throw a, I'm going to throw a question here into this conversation to maybe stir the pot. So Zen Zenoin writes in and he says, well, high end gamers really even need to use FSR, DLSS or ray tracing, or should they next gen? Assuming they buy one of the top end video cards, uh, should they, shouldn't they? should they easily be able to pull off 4K native at 120 hertz with their monitor of choice next gen? Every now and then I find ray tracing to just not be worth it in any scenario due to the little difference it makes to the game's look in most situations versus the performance that we use. And even now I run 4K 120 with some minor tweaks and I'm quite happy. Will I even care if I get a 7900 XT? And, and I did actually see people making this argument right when RDNA 2 launched before pricing went entirely out of whack because there was a, it was hard to get RDNA 2, but it was typically cheaper than Ampere cards. And then it clearly wasn't. And then now it kind of is again. Like, But I do remember this like month when RDNA 2 and Ampere had just launched where they're like, well, if a 6800 XT is findable for 800 or less and a... 3080 is over a thousand half the time, then why would I ever get a 3080 for DLSS? The difference, you know, I already Mac and I, and I touched on that a little bit in my 6,800 XT review. I found overclocked, even without DLSS, I'm pulling 4k 120 in most games. Like, do you think this is a fair point about it next gen? Or do you think that we will certainly need it or what? Yeah. So that's a good point. So the, I'd say PC as a platform, it's, its biggest selling, or or really what's, to me, the greatest part of it is that it's modular, right? Mm-hmm. And so a company like AMD, NVIDIA, they're just going to launch their products at the fastest cadence they can to keep that technological, you know, next step moving. Um, that doesn't guarantee that there's going to be utility for that product when it comes out, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's here's, here's a, a product that if at its at its core converts your electrical power into some kind of computational output gamers are going to use that you know to play games researchers might use that for something else miners might use that for something else um but that utility for a gamer of hey just because this new big graphics comes 
graphics card comes out with heaps and heaps of computational performance that there's going to be something there for me to use. I don't think that's guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why these graphics cards cost what they do. Um, because in some sense, they're a bit of a luxury item. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if you just wanted to play games and enjoy games, there's a lot more cost-effective ways to do it. Consoles, um, you know, you name it. But um, yeah, I... I, I follow your channel and I see the the projected numbers for some of these new graphics cards. And I, I am even, confident they're doubling performance yeah. roughly. And again, let's say they hit 80% close enough. I, I'm confident they're going to be around double performance next yeah. gen. And then maybe 50% plus or even double that again a year and a half after it. Yeah. I So I see that and I have a hard time wrapping my head around of what would I even do with that much rasterization performance? Yeah. Other than surround myself with more expensive stuff to give myself a, a reason to, to yeah. yeah so well, maybe i need a new quantum dot oled high refresh rate monitor or something to to complement it you know so um well you know it's interesting too I, I brought this up to hardware unboxed and well not really hardware unboxed i brought this up in a i brought it up to hardware unboxed and you know they agreed that with that much performance there is a fair question to be asked like you know, if the mid-range costs as much as the high-end, but it's four times better, like, dude, how many people are going to care? But I saw a lot of people in the comments of that discussion with uh, Steve at Hardware Unbox talking about how games get harder to run. And it's like, I, I, I understand games get harder to run, but I do not think games will be four times harder to run in two years, <laughs> you know? And, and I think that it's going to take some time for devs to catch up to using that. And there will be a couple games, but I think 90% of games won't know what to do with the performance. Right. And so I think this is something you and I can probably relate to uh, in past decades of PC gaming, of just PC hardware being leaps and bounds far mm-hmm. ahead of where consoles are. And so developers, they're going to mostly stick around to, they're going to baseline their their graphics performance around the consoles for the most part. And we kind of saw that that happen where they're not going to push too much further out beyond what consoles are doing. Um, and for PC gamers in the past, when we had extra power, we would just reinvest it in resolution and frame rate. Mm-hmm. And it made a huge difference because the acceptable frame rates and resolutions were... 720p 30 fps right so getting to 1080p 1440p 60 hertz and above um had huge visual return for us i don't know if that's true now like if compared to say uh a a modern ps5 title uh, let's say horizon zero dawn is Mm -hmm. is a good example the game that looks really really good on console uh potentially you know comes to pc at some point forbidden west the newest one yeah yeah excuse me yeah forbidden west um comes to pc at some point you have some ridiculous graphics card Mm -hmm. uh where do you spend those extra cpu cycles like do you try to do 8k do you try to go higher frame rate you know and at the end how much is that worth it to you because i don't think i don't think they're going to make that title so hard to run that it's just going to, you know, make Loveless or a RDNA 3 just fall to its knees. No, Personally, I, that's my my kind of take on it, is that you're just going to have heaps of extra performance and maybe struggle at where you want to spend it. 
Well, you know, I think that when we compare this generation of graphics to a previous one, I think it is that kind of, you know, what, what, it, what would it be uh, like pre GCN to early GCN, you know, kind of Fermi and PS three, three sixty era where if you go back, man, the 360 and PS3 were really strong for the price you spent when they came out. And there are people saying PC gaming's dead. And look, I don't know what to tell you guys. There was heavy competition and Sony and Microsoft went all out with what they could make. Um, and it did kind of make some PC gaming look silly back then, especially with how expensive things like storage were that you needed on a PC and other things like that. Um, but by the end of that gen, you know, and there's a reason it went on so long. So it is different compared to now. But by the end of that gen, I had a 7970 overclocked by 35%. And I mean, I was, it was a joke running games. And the standard was 1080p. And that was considered high resolution still. And you'd have to like look for a resolution that frankly would cost an absurd amount and no one really uses. Like like 1600p back then, which is a 16 by 10 1600 like was not standard the way 4k is now <laughs> but that's right. kind of what you'd have to do to really flex the hardware and i feel like that's probably where we're going to be in a few years yeah and so i mean i i can definitely relate to that um i had a gcn graphics card at some point and it was complete overkill compared to to what was out there console wise you know um it was kind of the end of the that console generation but but yeah, it was like, where did you spend spend that extra computational power? Was it on resolution? High frame rate monitors weren't really a thing. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I would just crank up super sampling or anti-aliasing of some sort just to make the image look as pristine as I could. QH Freddy writes in and he says, in the last decade or so, there was a very strong focus on anti-aliasing and techniques to basically render better than the screen resolution. Now we suddenly have DLSS, FSR, and soon XE super sampling going the other way, trying to enable rendering below the screen resolution at acceptable quality levels. What gives? What drove this change? Why is MSAA suddenly lost and forgotten? And I do, it does almost feel like it was overnight. Like just bam, we just stopped talking about it. Yeah, so uh, I can speak to that a bit. Um, having watched that change um, take place, part of it was just rend real-time rendering changed uh, and the way the engines operate change um uh one of the techniques and i think you had you had a guest talk about this and on one of the past episodes um something a technique came came along called deferred lighting that came along that made you know you could start suddenly render a lot more lighting in a scene and then it made games look really good in a certain way but it was incompatible with msaa because mm -hmm. The lighting pass would just completely overwrite any extra data you did at MSAA, or you had to be careful at what step of the rendering process that you did MSAA. Here's kind of the crux of it. Real-time rendering is undersampled to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, that's just the nature of trying to do graphics in real time. So you're going to do it as cheap as you can get away with. So one sample per pixel is kind of the standard for rasterization. Mm -hmm. um, knowing that you're going to get artifacts from that, aliasing, MSAA was invented to say, hey, we know that edges kind of look bad on models, so let's add more samples there. If you don't have enough samples, you're not going to capture certain features. And that's that's why we see artifacts and aliasing. And in fact, when you're when you're recording audio or or sampling anything else digitally, when 
you get something like that, we call it artifacts and aliasing. So that's where that term comes from. Um, so in in a way, uh, NSAA went away for technological practical reasons mm-hmm. because real time rendering just kind of changed. Um, and but we got we got some things in its place. We got um, FXAA, fast approximation anti aliasing. Um, which at so, first looked pretty terrible, I think. Which at first looked pr- pretty bad. Uh, it was kind of made everything blurry. And but so this was a, a filter. All it does is it it takes in an image and it tries and looks algorithmically. It tries to find those jaggies. Um, and it doesn't really add samples to fix them. It just kind of smudges them, mm-hmm. to, so that visually the the viewer goes, "Oh, okay, it looks, you know, not as, not as messed up anymore." And then we got another technique called SMAA or subpixel morphological anti-aliasing. It's a mouthful, I know. What that did was it was kind of a mix between FXAA and MSAA, where it knew where aliasing was going to happen along edges. So the graphics card is already holding this information. It knows what pixels are affected, and then it just applies that smudging over them. Uh, so it's it's a better way to do FXAA, um, but it don't, it only works on edges. But really, what where it started changing was when Nvidia really started pushing, uh, and this was probably with I think Fermi, TAAA, mm-hmm. uh, temporal anti-aliasing. So. The idea for temporal anti-aliasing is um, going back to this information theory thing of you only want to send data, or in our case, generate data, uh, if you can't predict it. Well, TAA says, we have this previous frame, and it's really close to this current frame I'm trying to render. So some of the samples from the last frame are still valid for this frame. So why don't we just mathematically combine details from the last frame with this frame and we get more samples for free? Mm-hmm. We already did the work. Um, of course, that comes with some caveats. TAA mm-hmm. kind of breaks down in motion. You kind of have to track how things are moving uh, to kind of correct for motion. It, it's kind of like um, if you're taking a picture with your camera and your exposure is set too long, it just blurs out. Uh, so they kind of correct for that. And I think with TAA is really where people started forgetting MSAA even existed. Yeah, I mean, I remember a few games, it was kind of up for debate if you wanted to use it or not. But I remember Battlefield 1 being the first game I played where I was like, oh, wow, this just even in 1080p, I can leave this on and the Jaggies are mostly gone. And even then, there are some people that complained about the motion a little bit. But for me, I was like, it's worth it, guys. I don't know what you're, you know, compared to turning on some of the other things. Right. It it definitely ends up a little soft compared to, right. a, compared to a super sample uh, image. But it's good because it covers everything. It covers the whole scene. And so it's not just it's not just model edges. It's textures. It's transparencies. Uh, just by the nature of how it works, it's it's real effective. And. Now we see game engines utilizing TAA really, really effectively. They're doing checkerboarded rendering. Um, you know, they're consciously deciding where do we add samples, how do we integrate them across frames, and just present you an image that has as much. Uh, let's let's just being careful about how we generate samples in general, right? Um, it used to be let's just throw more samples at it as as much as we can because these GPUs can, but um, the rendering is getting smarter. Well, I think the, once we got 
everything was just waiting for us to get firmly kind of above 1080p because once we did all of these little issues with like TAA and stuff and they've improved TAA. So it's not like it's just the higher resolution. Yeah, it's, it's gotten real good. Um, but also it's more forgiving at a higher resolution too. And I think that what we're seeing right now is kind of this culmination of actually doing what we were trying to do for two decades correctly. Like we just kept getting stronger cards. And so it almost just became easier to just say, I don't know. I mean, heck, I remember with the seven, nine seventy, half of the games, it was so powerful. I would just turn on super sampling. I'd say literally yeah. just mm -hmm. render this at 4k and scale it down because it it's worth it to me. And I think that all the little methods we were trying just had so many drawbacks that I, I just kind of leaned towards that. And now we're finally getting to this point where we fully understand what's worth rendering a certain way. And, and, you know, when I really started to realize how silly the resolution debate, as it were, that now I think a lot of people realize is completely ridiculous to even worry about sub pixel stuff anymore. It's really just how good does it look is actually all the way back to the PS4 Xbox one era. I remember reading some <laughs> uh, fanboy arguments like people were on Xbox were bringing up rise some of Rome PlayStation people were bringing up Killzone Shadowfall. And I remember this debate about what resolution are they actually at? And then I actually like read some like, uh, well, both Crytek and Gorilla Dev Talks and like half of all of the frames were at all different types of resolutions. They're like, mm -hmm. oh, in the distance, the angles are at this resolution. We actually have a limited ray tracing scene that we're tinkering with in this scene here. That's really, really low level, like really, really like low levels of it. But like if we do it at a super low resolution in this one piece of glass, it looked cool in the cutscene. And like nothing we're doing here is at a native resolution anymore ever is what they is what Gorilla said. Like it hasn't been for a decade, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so and so that's kind of what I'm getting to is um this idea of just in a very linear fashion adding more samples, that's that's gone. Mm -hmm. We're doing it smarter. We're in the MP3 compressed kind of era of choosing what samples we want because they're expensive and putting them where they matter. And kind of at the forefront of all of this is uh I think DLSS kind of throws in uh, an interesting piece to the mix. So, uh, and you do believe it's at the forefront still because that's, you know, depending on which crowd you're talking to, they'll say, you know, and I was very critical of DLSS when it first came out. I thought it was a complete joke, you know? Yeah. The, the first, first version of DLSS, the image quality was, was questionable. But, um, what I like about DLSS is, it's it's very much leaning in favor of that utility of information argument that I keep coming back to, and that is you have this stuff about a scene, you have these rasterization samples, you might be tracking motion vectors and things like that. So build this neural net that can kind of guess what those higher resolution features are, you know, based on training, mm -hmm. and put them in there. And if that ends up cheaper than generating true mathematical samples and still looks good, then that's great. Like that's uh, from a computational standpoint and a perception standpoint, that's probably what we should be doing is getting and right there now, cheaper. 
I believe the way it works is they were kind of before they were inefficiently, I believe doing per game training, which was insane. And now they have just one standard algorithm or like, how would you describe how it works now? I'd, I'd have to look up on how the original version works. I know the old version, they were training against a very super sampled, uh, images of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at, at some point you do so much super sampling, you just consider it the truth or the ground truth. So that's what they use for training. Um, so the DLSS algorithm will spit out its output and then it compares it to the ground truth. And there's some difference between that ground truth image and the image it generated. And then the algorithm over time tries to get that error down. Um, and they did that on a per game basis. And per resolution per game. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it got a little complicated and it sounded expensive to do. It's kind of the downside of, of some of the neural net stuff is they can produce really good results, but um, training times can be really intensive mm-hmm. and, and really long. There's actually some work uh, you can look up that NVIDIA just did uh, taking kind of uh, photographs, feeding them to an AI, and the AI generates the model from it that mm-hmm. have gotten really good. Um so things are already moving in that in that direction of where can AI pick up the pieces so that we don't have to generate more ground truth samples because that's expensive. Right. And and now it's yeah. just one standard algorithm that you can literally drag and drop into any game's DLSS for. Yeah, and it's getting better. And you know, there's there's uh as long as you're aware of what kind of errors people pick up on, so that's that human perception piece again. Mm-hmm. You know, the Game of Thrones problem. Everyone's going to notice a bunch of blocky, <laughs> poorly quantized uh, information. So if DLSS does produce these visual anomalies, you want to make sure the ones that do occur are the ones that are not going to be noticed. Um, and real-time rendering, I think you have that in your advantage because frames change so quickly. Uh, you, you you know, you're not going to look at one frame and just <laughs> with a with a, a a magnifying glass go over every single pixel and go, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Yeah, you're probably not going to notice it in motion. So continually uh, optimizing the way this neural network is able to reconstruct these features, present you an image that you go, yeah, that looks good enough, or at least I don't notice, and do it in a way that I, th- I think this is the biggest challenge. I think NVIDIA actually did a good job with Turing uh, taking a gamble with ray tracing and DLSS because they knew that they were ahead of AMD mm-hmm. in terms of architecture, and they invested that in a gamble. It mm-hmm. takes die space to do ray tracing. It takes die space to do DLSS. So that was a gamble for them. They could have easily reinvested that space into just more rasterization performance, and they didn't. So I think that was good foresight of them saying, hey, we're, we're ahead in the market. And people kind of complained that, oh, Turing isn't really that much of a value added over Pascal. And I totally get that. And, that, and, and we, we kind of agree with them, even if you like Turing, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that, but uh, from my perspective, from a business perspective, that was a good opportunity for them to say, let's, let's try this. Today's video is brought to you by CDKeyOffer.com. As I put together a new benchmarking station for 2022, I know that whether it's running Windows 10 or Windows 11, I will be getting that key from CDKeyOffer.com. And that's because it's a reliable, long-term sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead that gets you reasonable 
prices on legitimate keys for these types of products. But it's really not all that they offer. They also can give you keys for Microsoft Office, uh, keys for PlayStation codes, and even some of the latest PC releases like Elden Ring, a game that I'm enjoying quite a bit. Whatever you need, CD Key Offer probably has you covered. And they're always running sales, but make sure you use the best code possible. And that's the ones provided for the Moore's Law is Dead fans. Moore's Law is Dead fans get the biggest discount. And if you go to the link on screen or in the description you can use code broken silicon to get 25% off Microsoft products and Dyshring to get 3% off everything else on the website using these codes really does help Moore's Law is Dead and it helps you play reasonable prices for games that you want in keys that frankly you just have to use half of the time so again use the link in the description use broken silicon use Dyshring depending on the products you're getting and pay reasonable prices for keys today at cdkeyoffer.com do you think that will continue to be a good opportunity though and and i'm the the cart's getting a bit before the horse on this question because we need to see what rdna3 actually does but you know as i finish up my lovely summarization it's like i'm kind of seeing a lot of evidence that rdna3 may be very close to lovelace's ray tracing performance you know we'll see how bad this ages, but that's kind of what that sounds like to me. It, you know, if AMD manages to do this with how they're doing it with RDNA 3, which I don't know, maybe they'll just, you know, maybe they will have had to have done something that way, maybe not waste, but uses a lot of die space specifically for ray tracing purposes. Maybe they're just kind of skinning the cat with die space in a different way, but maybe not. I don't know. What do you, do you expect that or what do you think? I expect them to get close. So I know third time's kind of been the charm for AMD, right? Zen mm -hmm. 3, kind of knock out of the park. Um, RDNA 3, hopefully also the same thing for them. I think they're definitely gunning to not be seen as, you know, just the the budget option or the, you know, the option you choose if you don't care about ray tracing. Mm -hmm. I think they're getting a lot of steam from developers from console development since RDNA is in the, in the consoles. So developers are learning how to extract the most they can out of those uh, consoles to me, which is impressive because the, the ray tracing hardware in the consoles is kind of meager compared to what NVIDIA is doing on PC. And the results they've produced are, are pretty good because developers are talented and, you know, they're, they're using it where it counts. Yeah, and I, I'm someone who can speak to both. I own an Ampere graphics card and a PlayStation 5. Um, which has the exclusives that I think are impressing right now on console the most with ray tracing, which is, of course, you know what, Spider-Man and uh, I, don't have, I haven't played Ratchet and Clank, but that's one of them. Um, and I think what you see, though, I will have to say, though, as someone who's played both, I think that Ampere is capable of more obviously impressive ray tracing. Yeah, agreed. But... If you take performance into perspective, I don't know, actually, Spider-Man's ray tracing is interesting in what it manages to do, but it's not quite as wowzer as you think. But now if you compare it to other things on console, though, like Watch Dogs, it's laughably better than what Watch Dogs <laughs> yeah, sure. ray tracing looks like. So right. it's, it's hard to say it's good in its own right. 
you know, is what I would say. And, and I wonder how much of getting RDNA three to possibly match Lovelace's ray tracing is enhancing what they've already done and just having the buy-in from developers to optimize it. And how much of it is, no, we're actually putting effort into it in this architecture. Like, I wonder what you would think, how much that balance is going to be for RDNA three's ray tracing performance. I would think definitely there's going to be architectural improvements hardware wise. Of um, course. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to right? as, as engineers, you're going to want to tweak and iterate and, and make that better, especially if that ends up in a place that's going to end up saving you some die space mm-hmm. for the amount of performance you you're targeting for, for the, uh, that architecture. But um, one comparison I, I would probably make is remember when tessellation was new? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every review would have would review the tessellation performance. And every time there's a new architecture, oh, how much did they improve tessellation, tessellation? It's still around. We don't hear about it anymore. No, because it's very easy now. Right. I think that's what's going to happen to ray tracing. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to hear about it every architecture until at some point we stop because it's just so ubiquitous and the rendering techniques are well established and um, you can apply it to every game. And from a perception standpoint, um, it's not worth quantifying anymore in terms of the results. I I think we'll get to that point um, eventually. I don't know how many architectures it's gonna take. I kind of feel like this this next round of graphics cards is going to really be the one that starts to feel like selecting the ray tracing option in your game isn't as much of a compromise as you thought it was going to be. And that kind of makes sense. Um, Well, I mean, you know, I think we're going to roughly double performance next gen and rasterization, which I think, and this is something me and Dan talked about on the last broken Silicon as well. Like once you hit double what we have now, I almost do wonder like, who cares? Like that's where, and I'm already happy with a 3070 and that's not even the top card. Like, so you're telling me we're going to have something three to four times stronger than what I have. I can't imagine really caring unless again, we'll see how this ages badly. Some game comes out that's worth it. And, but I'm skeptical. Any game will come out with appreciable graphics worth using that much more uh, teraflops just for that. But, um, you know, I think ray tracing is going to be for NVIDIA probably somewhere around 2.2 to 2.4, 2.5, maybe 2.5, 2.6 times. What's an ampere? And the reason is, is it's a higher ray tracing increase than rasterization. So if you double raster, then you're probably going to get to almost 2.5 times the ray tracing. Then AMD, it almost sounds like it's more like triple the ray tracing, but they're kind of behind NVIDIA. So I don't know. It yeah, depends. They're playing, you, they're playing a little catch up. But it, it depends on the game, of course, because actually mm-hmm. in some of them, they're not, I guess. But at, at the end of the day, though, we're, you know, do you think that'll be enough that we don't care yet? Like just triple what we have now, like all of a sudden. I, I, I don't I don't I think it depends on the game. It, I think it'll always depend on the game. Um I mean, hardware is one piece, but the software is definitely a very important part of the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm always fascinated by uh, what these software engineers and game engine designers are able to to squeeze out of these systems. Um, do you think we'll, we'll do full ray tracing, that's it, anytime soon, though? That I don't know. And so that's where I wonder where some of these um, AI techniques come in. Because mm-hmm. one of the biggest things is with ray tracing, it's you just keep adding rays to the scene and it looks really noisy and you keep adding rays and eventually it converges on the image that you want. 
that takes a long time. It's very computationally expensive, so you always need a denoiser of mm-hmm. some sort. Um, so one of the big thrusts I know right now in rendering is uh, what's the minimum number of rays you can get away with and just have a neural net touch up the results so mm-hmm. that it looks... Um, or even have a neural net fake the lighting. Um, that's one of the interesting oh. things you can do about neural nets. Like you can teach them physics. You can teach a neural net gravity. You can teach. Well, you can give them no. You know, you're you're not handing them over the equations of you know wave mechanics and saying here come up with something. Um, you can just train them with scenes. Like here's how a scene re- reacts to lighting. Um. And what we're seeing is that these neural nets can can fake a certain level of fidelity really cheaply. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I'm wondering how much if, latency is involved, though, if you were to try to do that live in a game. So that's kind of where uh, I I'm unsure of. I know Nvidia is really pushing hard in this area of where can you apply it in real time and where does it make sense. A lot of what I've seen. Um, they're pushing neural nets to go the opposite way, go from a photograph to graphics, mm-hmm. as opposed to going from a model to to um, an output image. Um, or at least that's what I've been paying attention to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's the other part of it, is, is the real-time aspect of how fast can you do that? How big of a neural net do you need executed to do that? How much die space is that going to take? What's the trade-off uh, compared to rendering this traditionally and just adding the samples. Um, so there's a very interesting cross-section of AI, ray tracing, rasterization, and squeezing all of those for kind of the low-hanging fruit of each to try mm-hmm. and get the biggest yield out of all three, right? And, and, and get yeah. something to screen. Yeah, and I can't help but think that it's going to be, though, a cross-section for a while because pre-baked lighting looks really good, though. <laughs> like, And it, it does. looks so much more high-resolution and precise and, than at least and, the ray tracing we have now. Yeah, and, and I even imagine AI-assisted tools where if you've seen how they do pre-baked lighting now where they, an artist kind of goes and yep. places the lights manually, is there an AI system that learns what an artist does in a scene? and can automate the placement of those things for you. So what part of the problem do you want to attack with this, <laughs> with AI helping, right? You, you could have AI helping the rendering, you'd have AI helping the artistic aspect of it. Um, That's such a fascinating idea that I haven't heard anyone bring up is like we're focusing on ray tracing. So, you know, as Jensen, <laughs> Jensen Wang said, it just works. So you don't need to touch up every little thing, but then could we not also just have an AI help you touch up everything for yeah, you? Yeah, or, or imagine a tool, uh, you know, you're sitting there, the artist is working on a scene. Maybe it employs ray tracing and then decides where these kind of static lights go right? based on what the ray tracing result was so that the artist doesn't have to go and, and think about it. it Which it would take of, some work ahead of time making yeah. the game, but not what you'd take now you just probably run some you probably have some what is it uh you know like some tool within a game engine and you mm-hmm. like you have this scene and then the ai uses ray tracing at 20 frames and then an ai pre-bakes all of it and it's like yeah done anyways yeah exactly so i i think all of that is being explored now mm-hmm. and the, to me that's exciting because i like we were stagnant for a long time and in, in kind of hardware 
and software and um th- this is cool this is really cool and, you know i've had this i don't know if it's a hot take i don't know if you call it a devil's advocate argument but just an idea i've thrown out there a few times this year of just you know guys i think there might be a chance ray tracing is going to go from being an, a hallmark of an enthusiast game to an indie game like indie devs are the ones that are fully ray traced and run at lower resolutions but then the triple a games are always going to be a cross section of some kind of pre-baking because they can afford to do it and it kind of always does look better in the places where you can't notice it's pre-baked yeah so um i I think that's that's a good observation um i almost always look at at new tools in terms of what's the utility they offer, whether that's from, for computing stuff, that's almost like from an information theory perspective and energy efficiency, right? Those are kind of the two two things you need to look at. Um, and as long as they offer some kind of utility somewhere, making someone's job easier, um, it's probably a good product, right? It's not, it's not, uh, snake oil, you know, it's not just NVIDIA saying, hey, there's this new DLSS thing and we're pushing it. We're, it's good because we're marketing it heavily, right? If there's if there's real utility there, it, it, will, it will live on, whether it's DLSS or XESS or whatever um, comes out of it. So, um, but where you almost always see new technologies adopted the most are, are like the extreme ends of the spectrums. Mm-hmm. It's where companies have tons of money to throw at it and where people don't have a lot of money to throw at it. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of interesting, right? So I, it's I think, always the people who don't have the money, so they need it or the people who have the money so they can use it first. But yeah, I, I think you're, you're totally right. I think you're going to see some mix of things going on, AAA titles, uh, pushing ray tracing and kind of uh, some pre-baked stuff, you know, artists touch a little more. And then you can see indie titles, Maybe they're not pushing the edge in some areas, but hey, they can implement ray tracing really cheaply, and you have really convincing visuals for at at no added development cost for them. You know, it's interesting too. I almost think that before we know where we're going to go with GPU architectures that try to move past this weird bolted on ray tracing with raster at the same time, we kind of just need to max out both and then converge. Like, I almost wonder if, like, you know, think about what I'm saying here. So let's say RDNA 3 doubles performance, triples ray tracing. Then RDNA 4, I don't know, 80% more performance, and it doubles ray tracing again. At that point, I think you got enough ray tracing and raster. And, you know, NVIDIA will assumedly be at a similar point. And I wonder if what will happen then is they just kind of almost go, okay, so what do devs do with, are they going to lean into the ray tracing more? the raster more? Can we start actually not improving ray tracing much, not improving raster much? Because you almost wonder if you need to give them almost too much performance than they need so that we then find out how the rendering pipeline evolves so that we get to this truly, truly next gen built from the ground up, not having to support these old games that much. Even then, you're probably going to want to have some things in there so you can run old games at an okay frame rate. But I almost wonder if we have to wait for devs to show us what they're going to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that happened in the 90s, right? Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the GPU vendors, um, even with the consoles, no one was really sure how to do 3D. It's, it definitely didn't look like the, the paradigm we have now where you send most of it to the GPU and the GPU handles the triangles and the models and textures and everything. 
um, if you look at some of the early 3D consoles, it was like, well, do we do our vector calculations over here on the CPU? Do we pass them over mm-hmm. to that DSP processor? Like, it was, it, it, people were just experimenting. No one knew what the best um, approach was until a certain approach caught traction and everyone went, yeah, you know, this kind of makes sense. This is easy to develop for. The hardware exists. Uh, and then it took momentum. And then you also have to develop the standards and the APIs to support it, right? So OpenGL and DirectX had to become widely supported for that 3D paradigm to get there. I and mean, we saw that with ray tracing early on. NVIDIA kind mm-hmm. of pushed their RTX and it was kind of like pseudo supported through DirectX. Um, and now DirectX supports ray tracing a, a lot more formally. Um, and now we're, and a, I mean, and a lot more honest, agnostically. Now we have uh, <laughs> DirectX 12 actually being used. Like, what was that, a decade ago we were starting to talk about it or something silly? Yeah. Um, but l- let me move forward here. Mars Lazarus writes in, he says, hello, Tom and Matt. Are there any news, is there any news regarding FSR 2.0 and or XE super sampling? How do you expect them to stack up against DLSS 2.0 or 2. whatever? He says 2.x or whatever they call it, whether it's 3.0 or whatever. And do you think one of them will become the standard by virtue of being open source and vendor agnostic? So I I think we'll just have to wait to see what Intel does. (laughs) We don't really know how well it will pan out. It looks impressive in the videos they show, but I don't know. Um, For FSR, though, we've mostly been talking about DLSS, like, do you have any thoughts on how FSR works and where AMD can go with FSR 2.0 to make, because I think that's the wild card. We talk about how, I talk about in my Lovelace leak that I think it's very obvious as long as NVIDIA is within 20% of the performance of top RDNA 3, they can then just try to leverage a new version of DLSS and really spend the money to put it into every single game on PC and say, whatever, we're better with DLSS and it works now. Like, I think the wild card is if FSR is every bit as good as that. Like, what do you think about FSR and where do you think it might go to maybe make it so they really do keep an advantage over Lovelace? So to me, the biggest distinction between DLSS and FSR is that DLSS will add information to a frame. Mm-hmm. Um, the neural net decides, you know, these certain higher resolution features need to be here that'll kind of insert them um, with some error, but it inserts new information to the scene. FSR does not, um, mm-hmm. in its current form at least. And FSR is kind of, there's information about this scene and it's at the wrong resolution and it's more about how do you present it in a way that doesn't just make it look worse, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's that whole thing of anytime you have to change your resolution on your monitor to something subnative, it just looks like crap. Whether it's because the scaling algorithm NVIDIA or AMD uses uh, wasn't that good or actually... It, it kind of depends. Like, there's a lot of. It depends on the game too. Some of them they look great. Some of them it's like ah. Right. So it depends on the game. Um, sometimes I, I know Windows used to do this. You would set the resolution lower, and you can choose whether the scaler in your monitor does the downscaling or that your GPU does it. A lot of these monitors, the scaler algorithm is is it's meant to be cheap and quick, mm-hmm. and so it looks it looks bad, and the colors get washed out and 
it just looks awful. Um, if you were smart enough to switch it over to GPU scaling, probably had a better experience, but still doesn't look great. Um, but FSR was kind of the the area where it said, hey, let's solve that problem. How do we take this lower resolution image where all the samples aren't necessarily lined up to the output resolution you want? How do we kind of interpolate that information and display it in such a way and add sharpening and here here and there and you know, a little bit of uh, an artist touch to the to the final output and and give you something that doesn't just look destroyed by by the scaling process. To me, I wish I wish we had FSR years ago. And from a it's, technological right, it's almost different than DLSS that way, right? Uh, like it allows you to just not have to lower resolution, but just you run the native and turn on FSR instead of downscaling. Right, and so to me, yeah, it's kind of a tragedy. I wish we had something like this years and years ago in PC gaming. Um, and from a technological standpoint, there's being it being a post-processing type filter, there's no reason we couldn't have. There's mm -hmm. no one really paid attention to to that problem. Um, so going forward, um, so that's kind of technologically the big distinction between the two is is DLSS adds information. FSR doesn't, but it presents it in a in a better way. And going forward, I think it, AMD maybe got itself into a little bit of a a, a marketing pickle mm -hmm. because everyone was expecting FSR at least initially to be the DLSS competitor, and I think they also expected it to be the competitor technologically, not just from a utility standpoint. They kind of serve the same purpose from a utility standpoint. You get more performance, right. and it still looks pretty good. That's kind of the the, the end result. Which I want to be clear and save us from people in the comments. I know they're not the same thing. Right. But from a, and you put it much more eloquently than I have in the past, from a utility standpoint, though, they kind of are. Come on, guys. Yeah. From the consumer's point of view of just, hey, my game's not running as well as I want it to, and I need to do something to get it to run better and not look as bad that they, they serve the same purpose. Technologically, they're quite a bit different. So I think um, for FSR 2.0 to be competitive, I, I, AMD needs needs some kind of neural net or machine learning system to, to compete with DLSS on that same technological level. Mm -hmm. um, whether they call that FSR 2.0 or give it some new name, um, I think that's up to them. I think it might cause some confusion, <laughs> potentially. Um, marketing always tends to cause a lot of confusion. So, so I'm curious. Um, I don't. I don't see these image scaling methods going away. Whether that's NVIDIA image scaling, FSR. I'm sure Intel will have mm -hmm. some some version of it, or just use FSR since it's open. But they're all going to start competing on. I think this machine learning front, and I think AMD is is pretty really. They're, they're late to the game on that by a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but you think they have to add some kind of trained al component of that algorithm? I, I think I think eventually, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's that's kind of the writing on the wall and kind of, I guess, our discussion leading up to this point of machine learning methods and rendering and and the utility of just getting a picture on screen that the user says, yeah, this is this is what I want, whether it's has errors in it or not. Let me ask you this. Is, do you think there's something they can do? Because it's something I've had suggested, or I don't know if it's even been suggested so much as I've kind of assumed it, like that 
AMD can do to kind of accelerate how efficient FSR is specifically for their architecture? Is there anything you believe they can do in the actual hardware to do that? Or do you believe it's all software and that's why FSR typically runs better on a Radeon card than a Pascal one? Um, I think you can do it because I, I mean, from what I understand of it, it just runs on, it's a post-process filter. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, th- I think it basically just runs in, in, on the shaders. Mm-hmm. And the shaders are just little pieces of the hardware that are programmable by the developer. Mm-hmm. So that's why it can run on everything. But if you, it's built with one type of shaders in mind, it would be so, more efficient. Yeah, so if, if, if AMD just built a block that took whatever frame buffer, passed it in there, and the, the logic of this block, all, its only purpose is to apply scaling, then yeah, you can get it done quickly and cheaply, but it's going to be a it's going to be a dice based trade off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the whole trade off of do you, do you want to do it in programmable logic blocks that might take a little bit longer to do it, take some energy to do it, or do you want to actually set aside dice base and fixed function hardware to do it? Is it enough? Like what is that engineering trade off to them? Is kind of I I don't know what that block looks like. Right. In terms of what that compromise is, in terms of what what they would be willing to trade for it. Well, and it you want a, it to be perfect before you add that block, too. Right? right. Yeah. You want to make sure it works. You'd want to make sure you know it accommodates all the different resolutions that you're interested in. And but yeah, at some point, it it is a trade off. Um, and that's kind of where engineering and everything is. It's all it's all compromises between solutions. Um, don't you think we're getting to the point though? where we're getting to such outrageous amounts of performance to gigantic die sizes on super dense nodes that you'd go, if we can use 10% of the die space to make FSR twice as efficient so we're getting 50% higher frame rates or something, you'd think it'd be worth it. Yeah, uh, I would I would imagine these are all the questions these engineers are thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them might even be thinking of... Uh, I, I guess here's here's kind of devil's advocate to the point I made of AMD needs a, a neural net type sure. type upscaler is there's probably an alternate opinion somewhere existing that says no let's just keep pushing hard on just rasterization and ray tracing and and use and never trade that die space. Let's That's <laughs> kind of what it almost sounds like to me too. I think with like little tweaks here and there so that FSR runs more efficiently if you can do a little tweak to RDNA three, so, but. Yes, I, in terms of the overall idea, I kind of think that's what they're leaning towards. Yeah, so so there's that ultimate argument. There's that you imagine a world where it doesn't matter. You have enough you have enough gains in rasterization and ray tracing, gen over gen, that you don't care. Um, or maybe you have such good gains in in uh, rasterization and ray tracing, you just super sample or or even subsample using FSR and it looks good enough. Like it, it, it's all different routes to the same end mm-hmm. of in what manner do you add information or in what manner do you get to this this final render and present to the user? And you get in this complicated space of do I just oversample? Do I add neural denoising? Do I like what are the different things I can get to? And at the end of the day, it just it's here's a picture at a certain frame rate to the user, mm-hmm. and anyone who can make gains in efficiency to that output using any of those means, I think, is going to be 
good, especially if it ends up easy for developers to to get to. There's definitely something to be said about let's just crank up the amount of sampling we can do and just use simple FSR mm -hmm. where needed because that's easy for developers. It's you know, DLSS and those types of techniques take work to to integrate into your engines. But just adding more samples and, and downscaling is really easy. So Yeah. I mean, I mean, the amount of, and NVIDIA has the money, but the amount of effort that was needed to put in to have DLSS, the fact that comparatively so much less effort could make something like FSR where we're even having the discussion that they're comparable. You can see the person in AMD and the engineer going, look how much less we're spending to compete. Yeah, um, the, the flip side of that is NVIDIA, you know, they're not just putting tensor cores on their GPUs just for mm -hmm. DLSS, right? They're, they know that there's researchers out there doing machine learning research and a lot of workloads that benefit from having tensor cores. So for them, um, I think it's a little more important because they have that place in the market, whereas AMD doesn't have as as cemented of an AI research type hardware pitch. Well, and that kind of leads perfectly into this other thing I wanted to bring up earlier, but let's get to it now, of like, I think there's NVIDIA, like you brought up, was ahead with Turing. So they knew they could start gambling on features that weren't just strictly really, really for gaming. I mean, even Ray Tracing wasn't really for gaming when it was first added to Turing. Um, but... I think in hindsight, you might argue they may have realized that image quality is getting to such a level that it might be worth focusing on the utility of a GPU because I've seen every Ampere review focus on like the NVENC encoder and like non-gaming tasks. Uh, Chris Rich writes in and he goes, the transistor density of new chip manufacturing processes is still improving, but the cost per wafer is now increasing about as fast as it seems. And just to make it specific, like I know that the wafer cost for TSMC's five nanometers is about 70% higher per wafer compared to seven nanometers. So five nanometers, 70% more for the same <laughs> wafer compared to seven. And that means that even if you get 80% more density, you're practically just paying one-to-one -one for it. But he continues, in other words, the cost per transistor is only improving very slowly or perhaps not at all. Do you agree and do you think end customers will need to adjust their expectations for new products? Would you expect the manufacturing side to change to mitigate this? And I, and again, I think this is an important point because I think they're realizing, I mean, if we can convince everyone they're you know, actually a pessimistic way would be to put it, if we can just convince everyone they're a creator, maybe they'll pay extra for the gaming card anyways. <laughs> and I do think that's a fair point because it happened when Vega came out. I remember seeing a lot of fair points from NVIDIA fanboys in the WCCF Tech comments going, I didn't realize all AMD gamers were creators now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's a good point. Um, in order for us to make, keep making gains of computational density, um, the process gets a lot more complex. Um, that happens in every industry. Uh, in, in industry, it's the 80-20 it's the, the rule, right? Mm -hmm. The last 20% of anything takes 80% of the energy and effort. And that's kind of the wall we've been slamming into with Moore's Law mm -hmm. for a while now is, hey, we can't just cut the feature size in half every you know, year and have a new GPU generation every every year. Um, 
and everything just doubles and it's magical. Um, we had that that time period of technology, and it was <laughs> it was both wonderful and bad, right? Because you I mean, the software was terrible performance every year, but your stuff was obsolete in a year. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of benefit to stagnation, and I think you mentioned that a little bit about the 28 nanometer era of things were stable in terms of as a commodity, how much computational power you needed, how accessible it was, how cheap it was. And you weren't really expecting things to move and, and leave you obsolete. So with graphics cards getting more and more expensive, it's it makes you wonder, are we going to settle on a level of performance that we say, yeah, it's good enough. And people who need more are just simply going to be the people willing to pay a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the ultimate the ultimate player in this whole utility argument is ultimately be what does Nintendo do with Switch 2 hardware? You know, mm -hmm. the whole the whole rumor was it's going to be DLSS at the forefront. It's going to be some kind of chip that can do DLSS, and and that's how they're going to reach their their 4K target. Mm -hmm. At least that's the rumor. I don't know if you've heard more than that. Um, well, I had so, that that yeah. Switch 2 leak where I kind of talked about how. The, the level of performance I expect. And, you know, of course, it's I just laugh when people ask me how much stronger will it be than the original switch. It's like, I don't like it. It's so weak. How do I even quantify how much stronger it is? Like, it's exactly. gonna be like at least 10, 100. It's going to be crazy stronger. I mean, we're talking about a 20 nanometer chip compared to what will be probably a five or eight nanometer chip or something. Yeah. And so I, I think the switch is a, a good a good study point for this utility argument, because computationally, it's nothing special. Mm -hmm. But it sells like hotcakes, and people like playing games on it. Um, and I think Nintendo currently they they don't want to just sell you a computer that plays games. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think that's their business model. I think it, every, at least with every console they've released, they try and do something special with it. And so like the Wii was motion controls, and you know the DS had touch screens, and everything they released has some other aspect to it of how they're trying to entertain and integrate or engage with you. It's not just, Oh, it's got more power. Mm -hmm. So the manner at which the switch Two I think approaches getting more visual fidelity is going to be telling about that, about that utility argument and telling about the costs associated with reaching that level of fidelity and newer process nodes. My thoughts are Nintendo's going to go with the leanest thing they can get away with. That's mm -hmm. kind of been, there may be even one time. step below what we would say that is because they always seem to be just slight a little weaker right. than even what I thought the minimum would be. And and if DLSS allows them to get there, that probably means from an energy standpoint and a rendering standpoint, that was the right trade-off to make. Mm -hmm. Which kind of cements this idea of this is probably the future of where real-time rendering is going. If Nintendo consciously with NVIDIA make the decision that the best way to get to the level of performance they want is to rely heavily on DLSS and that allows them to get the chips cheaper and in the quantities that they want, then that's real. That's very good economically. And I, as a consumer would be really interested in seeing what those results look like. You know, am I going to see a, a 4k Nintendo game? That's just going to blow me away and be like, yeah, this is, this is good. I'll play this. Well, I'll you know, say, you know, I want to see where, where it ends up. In, in terms of raw performance, I'm expecting it. I'm trying to think of exactly how, how would I class this? Probably something 
Oh God, I'm just trying to like relate it to the other consoles. Probably something that's, you know, plus minus 30%, uh, which I know is a huge range, but there's a lot they can decide on and what die they go with in terms of like the Series S. But then if you throw DLSS on top of that, I still have trouble believing it will easily run every game at a fake. Uh, again, you know, it's, is it fake? It's not really fake, but it, it looks just as good. Uh, 4K 60, you know, I, I think that's kind of where they're looking at. And so I don't know where you would class that, you know, if that's good enough, you know, something around Xbox Series S, but with the LSS. I think for Nintendo, it's good enough. I, I, I agree, you know. And and Nintendo is pretty smart. They, if they want to make a game 60 FPS, they adjust the art style to get there, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of, um, and a lot of their games kind of lend to that. They don't go for ultra fidelity. A lot of times it's more cartoonish, you know, or, or to, that's that's the art style lends lends itself to to easier rendering, I guess is the way I, I would put that. Um, my my counter argument to that always uh, the art style argument is yes, but Nintendo, if you just made it a little better, you could have every third party game and make all that money too. Right. So yeah, I, I also agree with that as well. They also lock out Give a bunch Switch. of really talented developers because yeah. the game simply can't run on their hardware. If the Switch um, was you know, again, and I, the, I think I've covered this, like, I think they could have gone with Pascal. Uh, they could have actually gone with Volta even potentially, but instead they went with <laughs> Maxwell after Pascal was, well, after Volta was out, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just go, God, if you would have just given it six gigabytes of RAM instead of three, and you would have just given it that little 50% performance bump, which probably for being honest would have cost like 20 bucks. Like you could have run every third party game. Yeah. As four did. In some alternate universe, there's a <laughs> there's a version of Nintendo that doesn't underspec their systems, but that pays twenty dollars to double yeah. performance. Um, you know, but uh, but but yeah, that's a a good good thing. This this rising cost, um, commodity cost for essentially computers. Um, Steam Deck, I think, is also another good a good uh, product to study there, um, because it's coming in with a. a pretty mo- uh, a modern APU and we're still even just looking like how well is this going to run things even at 720p with FSR um yeah you know so that's 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 the ballpark we're playing and I'm I would love to see what the sock uh, the loveless or whatever sock Nintendo chooses mm-hmm. for switch to where it ends up in comparison to to switch or uh, steam deck and what it costs and just what developers can do with it so to bring it back to an earlier thing, I do want to ask this. Uh, Guntus Peglis writes, and he says, hello, Tom and Matt. What are your general thoughts on the subject of balancing performance and picture quality in gaming? Right now, we already have checkerboarding, DLSS, NIS, FSR, XE super sampling, and variable rate shading for things like upscaling, sharpening, and spending less shading resources in general on objects that just don't need it. Is there a new technology around the corner that could help selectively render the important parts of the frame in higher fidelity and the less important parts in lower? Kind of like rendering in FP16 and then rendering maybe this other part of the frame in FP32? Yeah, so I think um, that's right in line with what we've been talking about of just where we think things are going. Um, I think it would be cool to see futuristic engines and graphics pipelines that are totally aware of the complexity of the model they're trying to render and choose very 
um, economically where to sample. I think that would be amazing. Right now, it's just kind of everything gets uniformly sampled um, as if it's as if it has the same importance to, to some extent. I mean, you mentioned developers do things where not all parts of the scene are rendered at the same resolution, but but I mean even to to an even greater degree than that, like uh, to the point of certain pixels get super sampled. Um, mm -hmm. You know it, but but built from the ground up. Like these are all just from all a, the ground up a pipeline that it's not like we even market what it uses. It's just like it brings all these different choosing things. The whole time, yeah, yeah. Which I think you see some. I've seen some kind of like first party console devs play with this. You see, I think Epic playing with this and Unreal Engine Five, like this, almost like where they're like, well, we don't really worry about this. Like our whole pipeline is built to minimize this stuff. Yeah, Unreal Engine Five is a is a good example of of that utility and final output and how much information per pixel do you actually need. I think that was kind of their big push with um, their Unreal Five engine demos and and Nanite, mm -hmm. where you can just feed it these monstrous high resolution assets, and you don't have to think about doing level of detail scaling on it. It decides for you based on how far something is or et cetera. It's gonna it's gonna scale the fidelity of of how it renders something to See? to make it cheaper. So then to kind of directly answer his question, you think the next step is just the engine has their own cocktail that does all of this here and there. And then I guess maybe an NVIDIA driver is an AMD's catalyst. We just have the option to force FSR, some version of DLSS or, you know, maybe a, a you know, some other not it wouldn't be DLSS if you force it in a game because it kind of needs to be integrated. But like they make a version of it like FSR and which I think they already are, by the way. and that's just an option in case this game is just kind of lazily put together on an old engine. Yeah, so there's a lot to be said about what modern engines do for a developer in terms of optimizing those things. So you can focus on just making a game and not focus on how do I push it through the GPU efficiently. Um, but I guess to, to answer the question more directly is I, I think we're already there in terms mm -hmm. of is there something around the corner that's going to selectively sample and and make more efficient use of sampling I, I think we're there i think we're fsr and dlss and nanite and all of it all these new techniques you're hearing about that that's it um mm -hmm. it's it's i think it'll be a while for the dust to settle to kind of figure out what paradigm do we want to settle in in terms of this more economical efficient rendering but i think we're there and i'd like to see it pushed even further you know as as you were saying at a hardware level at a driver level at a but the fundamentals of rendering, uh, mm -hmm. is there a system that could intelligently make good sampling decisions based on the frame it thinks it has to render? Mm -hmm. um, we were kind of doing it now, but I, I think there's still, there's still a still lot of It's just kind of haphazard, ad hoc, and clumsy. We're not yeah. quite to where it's standardized and everything. Yeah, we're kind of like at dynamic resolution where, oh, the game drops from 4K to 1440p for this frame because it's heavy, but... But I, I imagine it even more, like, in a single frame, the resolution varies. Mm -hmm. In different um, parts of it. It's like, like oh, there's, rendering. Yeah, there's, like, nothing really going on in the sky, so it's sampled really sparsely. But the grass, there's a lot of detail, so we do a lot of sampling there and just 
I th- an engine an engine being able to make those decisions in real time on a per frame basis in a, in a way that's not uniformly sampled the way it is now. So I, I think we're we're getting to the point where we're already doing those kinds of things, and it's going to continue to get more baked in to the engines themselves and even into the rendering. And that's that's a cool place to be. So I want to then move on. We've been talking for a while here. I've got like two more probably main subjects, but one I kind of want to touch on briefly first, or not briefly, depending on how much we have to talk about it, is FPGAs. That was something you said there was a lot you could speak about. And I think I'm just going to open this up to try to get right into it quickly. How do you see FPGAs being used with graphics cards, rendering, gaming, moving forward? And this comes from... I remember five years ago, everyone was talking about ASICs constantly. You know, we're going to have an ASIC that does this, does that. And and this is probably coming from an outsider, you know, less educated on the matter perspective. But now it just seems like people are talking about FPGAs far more than ASICs. Uh, like, do you know what I mean by that? And like, how do you think this is going to intersect with gaming hardware? So I don't, I don't have a lot of perspective of, um, say, people mentioning ASICs more than FPGAs. Uh, so I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about well, at hot chips. I just remember okay. looking at some older ones, a lot of presentations and they're still there, right? And ASI, this isn't me saying, Oh, we're not, no, we're using them all the time still. Yeah. It just seems like most of the headlines are like a new FPGA that okay. does this one. Yeah. Thing. So, uh, for those who are listening, um, if you don't know what an FPGA is, it stands for field programmable gate array. Um, the easiest way to think about it is these are blank logic blocks mm-hmm. um they're not really blank but there's any any digital circuit you build it out of gates these logic gates they do and gates or gates not gates um if you take a digital logic class that's kind of where you start um and you can build circuits out of these gates so you want to build a circuit that adds two binary numbers there's a configuration of gates that you put together and it performs this function and you build up these little pieces slowly, um, piece by piece, until you have a full functioning thing that you want, uh, whatever digital function you want. Um, so an FPGA is kind of this array that has a lot of these gates available. And when you program it, it changes the way they're connected together to achieve the function you want. So you don't, um, it's it's not like a CPU where uh, you tell it what to do through programming and it moves your binary bits around to the gates that need to do those functions. The hardware itself actually rewires to do what you want to do. Um, so when you program an FPGA, use something called a hardware descriptor language. It It kind of looks like a programming language, but you're not describing what what to do to the data. You're describing the hardware you want to exist. Um, it actually, in, in practice, it ends up being a little bit of a mix of both because just like in programming where there's a compiler, there's a compiler for the hardware descriptor language. And you can tell the hardware descriptor language, like, I want these specific gates. I want two AND gates feeding into this uh, OR gate and the output goes here. So you can be very mm. specific about how you want things wired. Or you can say, I just want this logic to be carried out 
and it can figure out which gates to connect to do it for you. So there's a little bit of flexibility in terms of I know exactly what I want or just try and solve the easiest thing you can to achieve the result that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, where FPGAs are really useful are, one, if you're learning digital design, they're, that's where you're going to start. So if you're designing digital circuits for mm-hmm. any purpose, you're probably going to design them on on an FPGA. Um, because not only are the gates rewirable, you can rewire um, the inputs and outputs. So if you need to connect it to other chips, um, you can connect it to other chips. So let's say Intel or, or somebody is mm-hmm. prototyping a, a new block that's going to be on a chipset. Right. That's how they do or, a lot of their uh, R&D. Yeah, or, or doing a chipset or something. Yeah, they can, they can test what the performance and verify that it's going to do what they want to do by testing it on FPGA um, before committing to building a permanent version of it. Um, mm-hmm. Which is tens of millions of dollars to make right. a permanent version. And, and, and so there's no difference between like Intel's final chipset and an ASIC. Mm-hmm. The ASIC is just a, you know, a taped out version of what you were testing. Proto- prototyped on the FPGA. You just decided that I'm done testing it and I want to build thousands, millions of them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether you choose an ASIC or an FPGA is really going to depend on what you need from an engineering standpoint. If you're prototyping something that you plan on making millions of, then, yeah, you'll probably put an ASIC in every one of those devices at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But uh, kind of going back to the space payload stuff, satellite, for example, there's not a lot of missions where you're building more than one satellite for something. Eh, there's some right. There's some exceptions like uh, GPS or uh, certain communication satellites where you're going to build hundreds of these things. Starlink is a good example. Then you want to go for an ASIC. But for a lot of these missions, these satellites are one-offs. Mm-hmm. So an FPGA is actually a good option because you get exactly the custom digital hardware that you want, and you only need it once. So in that case, the extra cost that an FPGA has per unit over an ASIC uh, is fine. It's actually in your favor. Um, and so like this, FPGA is like this, the more, the companies, there's a lot of companies I've been talking to behind the scenes that specialize in them. This emergence of all these FPGA companies, it's a big deal because it kind of accelerates R&D then is kind of what you're saying and what you can do with one-off projects. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're very useful. Um, another place they're used a lot is in communication systems. So mm-hmm. anytime uh, you need to generate or receive it and analyze it really quickly. So 5G communications, for example, is a good. Um, FPGAs are great. Um, a lot of FPGAs have PCI Express buses on mm-hmm. them so that you can quickly transfer data. And for example, for communication systems, latency is a big deal. You don't want to spend a lot of time receiving data into a buffer, moving it to memory, pulling out of memory, uh, having the CPU do its thing, push it back to another buffer, and then get it out the door. Uh, you want to do that as quick as possible. So with an FPGA, you can say, hey, pull this data right into the buffer, and then from the buffer, go right into the logic that does exactly what I want to do and nothing else. It has this one function, demodulate or apply this filter or uh, 
do these computational tasks, do them quickly. Um, it's it's kind of like that. Uh, for example, this the when we were talking about earlier the FSR, mm-hmm. whether you do it in sh- in shader shader model and do it on the shaders in a programmable fashion, or you build your own block to just do it quick and cheap. Mm-hmm. FPGAs like building that block mm-hmm. where you just do it quick and cheap. But the actual block will be more of like an ASIC. Yeah, yeah, it would it would be an ASIC at the end of the day for something like FSR. But but I'm just making that comparison of right. computationally. Um, when you build a circuit, a digital circuit who has one function, it can do it really quick and it can do it really energy efficiently. Maybe not the most die space efficient, but but it does it quick. So in situations like communications where that's what you want, you want low latency and you want to do a lot of uh, mathematical things, in this case, modulation, demodulation, really quickly, uh, FPGAs are great. Yeah. I am proud to say that Vite Ramen is a sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead. The Vite Ramen company is an American company that pays its workers fair wages and engineered a tasty, healthy, and cheap meal that you can cook in less than five minutes. And these meals just got tastier with their updated version three of their ramen recipe. Meals aren't really healthy unless you keep coming back to eat the healthy ones. And that's what they've done with these updates to version three. Now is the best time to order some Vite Ramen. So if you're busy, hungry, or just looking for a pre-made meal that isn't expensive, get some nudes sent to you. Click the link in the description and use the code BROKENSILICON to save 10% on your order. This helps me, this saves you money, and this supports a good company. Buy Vite Ramen today. So I'm going to jump in here because I think I have a good time to ask this question. Carbon Cry writes in and he says, given Matt, and he put it in quotes, if that is your real name, given Matt's experience with FPGAs, do you have any thoughts on the Xilinx AMD merger? Competitive positioning of Xilinx versus Altera? I hear Altera focuses on making programming and FPGA easier. Well, Xilinx seems to have gone the application store route. Is that the correct view in your opinion? And which approach do you feel is more desirable by the market? Uh, so, I when I first worked on FPGAs, um, they were Altera, and I think this was prior to Intel acquiring them. And my experience was positive. You know, their programming workflow and tools were were really straightforward and easy easy to use. Um, the latest project that I worked on with an FPGA, it's a it's a Xilinx board. Um, it's hard to comment on actually the the quality of Xilinx software because in that particular project, the the stuff that's giving me trouble um, has nothing to do with Xilinx. It has to do with other hardware that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I can make a good comment on on one approach versus the other. What I will say is I think what you might be referring to is a trend I've seen in other parts of the industry. Uh, concerning engineering prototyping hardware and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, where there are a lot of companies that are leaning into kind of these turnkey solutions. Mm -hmm. So say uh, you want to do compliance testing for DDDR5. A company is going to sell you some suite of hardware that it's not just the hardware that enables that testing. It's going to be software and compliance testing. They they already kind of did the work for you. Mm -hmm. So that you can buy that thing, plug it in, and and get it going. So I think what 
if if I'm interpreting a question right, when you say more of an app store approach, I think that's maybe what you're describing. Um, feel free to leave a follow up. Uh, I, I can, but but I think both approaches are useful. So it's going to depend on the company you work at and what resources they have, and you know, and what the end product is. So and what I mean by that is you might be a small company and you're trying to build something revolutionary from the ground up. And so you might just say, hey, I'm, it's okay if I have to build all these blocks from the ground up because this is going to be the bedrock of my company and I want to know an in and out and it needs to be bespoke and perfect. Mm -hmm. You might work for a big company that has lots of capital behind it and they're like, we need a solution tomorrow. <laughs> and you go on, you go, oh, hey, Xilinx offers this board and it offers this right connectivity and it comes with this software package and it's a one click buy and it's here and we have functionality tomorrow. This, you know, the smaller company may not have the capital to just throw for for that kind of turnkey solution to just go. Um, so, so it's just gonna depend. I, th I think both approaches are useful. It's just gonna depend. What do you need as an engineer? Do you need it now? <laughs> um, uh, or as a company, you, you, may, you may not have the engineering resources to build something from the ground up you might be able to afford an FPGA, but if you don't have engineers that have substantial FPGA experience, then it's useful to for a company to offer these kind of turnkey solutions of here's the FPGA, but here's some building blocks that go with it so that you can get started right away. You know, it's interesting. I've talked about AMD's acquisition of Xilinx uh, from the perspective of their hard design team that's apparently world-class at working with TSMC. Uh, that's something AMD wasn't as good at. I've heard before they acquired them. And then we've all, I've also, of course, you know, it's like, well, they also offer all these other products that can be bundled with AMD stuff. It, it, it appears to me talking to you now that also a major benefit of having Xilinx become a part of AMD is their expertise building these FPGAs that are used to do R&D, right? Yeah, potentially. Um, I don't know what AMD's current um, prototyping workflows look like. Yeah, but it definitely helps. I think with so much of it being on FPGA and digital design, uh, having that expertise in house. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I just think that's that's definitely potentially a part of it. And I still a lot of people ask me, is there any other reason AMD's buying Xilinx? And I think you're kind of touching on a lot of that there. So, so okay, moving on to the kind of the final IP block of discussion points, if you will, that we are going to go through. Let me see. I just kind of want to like ask an open question here. It's something that I try to, you know, I, I try to only talk about like geopolitical things when they're on subject, but I, I think I have an on subject question to ask you. Is there going to be a worse time to release a 500 watt graphics card than when gas prices are soaring because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? <laughs> um, I think for big companies, it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> Right. Um, I think what we saw with at least coronavirus and the lockdowns, there was a lot of companies buckled for less business, especially in the tech sector, and ended mm -hmm. up getting more. You know, Zoom, Microsoft, everybody was scrambling to just add more cloud infrastructure, just buying up tons and tons and tons of chips. So I think for big tech companies, whatever the price comes out to be, I think they're going to eat that cost no mm -hmm. matter what, because... If they don't buy it, their competitor will. Exactly, yeah. Um, but for gamers, though, I guess. But for gamers, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of this perfect storm. Like, we're already 
we're already trying to get out of this hump of shortages and logistics problems uh, that have been associated with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, on top of it, we have a war going on that's going to upset, it's going to displace people, it's going to upset the economy. That's the thing about the world we live in today. It's so connected mm-hmm. that we're not going to even know what trickles out of this conflict in terms of upsetting the economy because we always find out we're connected in ways we never really thought of before. So energy, I think, is kind of the obvious one mm-hmm. in terms of it's, there's there's real opportunity cost now of now it costs more to heat my home and buy electricity and do all that stuff. Do I really want to spend an arm and a leg on what's already an expensive GPU just for it to suck up a bunch of power? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that utility argument of, one, can you afford it, right? Um, opportunity cost is different for everybody. If you're really well off, hey, you may not care. Um, but for some people, that's the difference between them being able to you know, afford gas to get to work or, or heat their home and, and, and do that kind of thing. So. Yeah. I yeah. think, uh, I, I think it, in general, people are just underestimating the realignment of how much is going to change when it comes to supply chains and like alliances between, or just, you know, just the geopolitics between different countries that we're looking at a complete realigning of <laughs> like uh, the relations between several between dozens of countries right now and that if we assume it's just oh well ukraine makes a bunch of grain so food prices are going to go up gas prices are going to go up i think there's a lot of hard to predict things and i think i would remind everyone that and i talked about this with the uh, oem in uh the uh, what is it uh, pc oem uh engineer that i had on like last year or was it over or over a year ago? I don't know. It was a while ago. Um, and we talked about how when the pandemic started, everyone was like, well, people are going to buy less, so we better make less computers. And then just immediately it's like, yeah, except now we're all using the cloud. So what are you doing? <laughs> and I worry yeah. that there's a lot of things going on now with predictions in the markets where I'm like, this is way bigger repercussions than just higher oil prices with Russia. This mm-hmm. is definitely going to affect how we work with China too, and everyone else. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, this is going to have ramifications on all parts of our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not just the the fuel prices. I think that'll probably be the one people are paying attention to. But but yeah, we're 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 going to have supply shortages and all kinds of different shortages that cascade out from this um, in ways that we can't predict. So. So yeah, I I don't know what else really to say. Would, I think we're, yeah yeah we're we're all kind of just watching this with um you know at least every every day I'm kind of glued to the headlines to see what's what's happening and um how this is going to shake out um not just from an economic perspective but just this is a very major event in I think all of our lives in terms of political alignment and and conflict and um I mean hey even just the thought of, uh, you know, nuclear weapons and stuff like that, stuff we haven't had to think about. We've been in a in a long period of time where no one even had to think about the nuclear arsenal, really. <laughs> yeah. And and now everyone's kind of thinking like, oh, yeah. Which, I don't know what you think. I, I think it's incredibly unlikely, even if there was a conventional war between, I don't know, let's say NATO and Russia, that there would be any nukes launched. But on the podcast Angry Planet, which I've had 
Jason Fields on from that podcast before, and we talked about what would happen if something happened with TSMC, how that would affect supply chains. Um, he on a recent episode, they brought up on their podcast or their guest did, you know, an expert on Russian politics. You know, it's not that we need to worry about like some Armageddon nuclear thing right away, but is it that inconceivable that if Russia felt threatened, they would launch a very, very, very tiny nuke at a remote power station and it really wouldn't kill a lot of people, but they would do it to prove they're willing to use them. That's the type of thing I worry about. Yeah. So there's been discussion about, um, you know, where do so-called in quotes, tactical nukes fit into all of this, Mm -hmm. uh, these kind of low yield, um, meant to supplement conventional warfare type, type weapons. I, I think something like that, would be pretty effective at sending a message. Um, the message, are you so sure I won't ever use these? Right. Um, and I think it, it it does totally change the calculus of warfare um, because something like a tactical nuke has never been used, right? So mm-hmm. not only are you, you know, probably destroying some target of interest with it, but also saying, yep, these are the rules now. Like, and and what does that say for... For Russia's potential adversaries, does that give them the okay that, you know, now tactical nukes and conventional warfare are okay? Like, it, it's a weird precedent. Because it, it's an escalation if that happens. Yeah, it's an escalation. And uh, that's really what we all want to avoid is escalation and lean towards diplomacy, of course. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, and that's that's that was, you know, hearing that on the podcast, Angry Planet, I keep plugging it, is that kind of like mental wall that I got through where I was like, yeah, but I don't think we're ever launching a bunch of nukes at each other. And it's like, no, but not right away. Kind of like if the, the evolution of it, you know, the missing link in the evolution, if you will, is, oh, but that could be the first step. But I could never think of what a first step would be, you know, and it's like, oh, we blew up this remote hydroelectric plant in the middle of nowhere. It only killed 10 people with this nuke, but guess what? We actually used a nuke now. Yeah. And, um, even with uh, like World War II and the use of, of nuclear weapons was primarily to send a message. Um, you know, there's a lot of loss of innocent life in, in the meantime and, and things like that. And that was because we wanted that message to be heard loud and clear. So I, I think two things happen is like launching a nuke to send a message is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, starting to use them tactically in a conventional warfare is another um, I would hope if if they were to use one, it would be solely to send a message. Um, because I can't imagine really a world where we're lobbing tactical nukes at each other all day in conventional warfare. It just sounds awful. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think me and I, I'm guessing you'll agree with me. I don't think me and you could have imagined that a couple months ago. But it seems clear to me, I'll just say it, we're not dealing with the type of rationality we thought we were with the severity of this invasion. You know, this isn't, we thought there was this 40 chess thing going on. I don't know actually anymore. I think we might have to maybe stop assuming everyone is as rational as we think they are. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that the, the nuclear option is such a big bargaining chip. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I mean, you could imagine a situation where Russia uh, didn't inherit this huge Cold War arsenal of nukes, um, maybe denuclearization 
took a different path and the number of warheads out there was far reduced and, you know, mutually assured destruction wasn't a thing. How much of a, a bargaining chip would they have in conventional warfare? Um, almost none. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you just, if it's just a numbers game of NATO versus Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the West would have acted a lot sooner if it wasn't just for this one big bargaining chip. Mm-hmm. It, but there's a reason the West yeah, is being more cautious with any further support, right, of Ukraine. It's right. This seems to maybe be a much more real bargaining chip than we thought, because we thought the conflict wouldn't escalate this much. But clearly, whether it's a lack of rationality or the variables they're considering are not what we are. <laughs> right. We misjudged the situation and how bad it would probably yeah. get. I think we all knew it could be an option what's happened now, but I don't think we thought it was a plurality of the chance of what was going to happen. Right. So it, had this been limited to con- a conventional conflict, um, I think the West would have been a lot more eager to I mean, move between in. solely conventional powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it probably would have escalated um, to more direct confrontation um, by now. Mm. But yeah, just that 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 nuclear option makes everybody hesitant. So I, I kind of understand why why both sides are Putin's <laughs> kind of playing it to his advantage, right? He he knows that his army probably isn't able it's it's no it's no match for NATO. And there's a lot of people that get mad at you listening to that, but I I'm sorry, like from what we're seeing in the results so far, it's not. Um I'm not saying it'd be an easy fight. No. Or one that anyone would want to fight. No. But, but I mean, if if you look at just the United States uh, military spending and development since the end of World War II, I mean, it's pretty much solely was focused on on combating the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and, and Russia technologically. And, and the spending didn't go down after <laughs> the Cold yeah, War. So, anyway, so. so you're talking about, you know, these forces were... And, and NATO and its existence, its its sole <laughs> primary focus is to confront Russia in a situation like this. Mm-hmm. And and now we're stuck kind of at the mercy of, well, we can't use any of those tools and all this spending because of the nuclear option. And so mm-hmm. Putin's kind of having the, the uh, in my opinion, he's he can abuse the effectiveness of his, his or the, the effectiveness of his conventional warfare um is a little bit um he, he's kind of getting getting away easy that no one's confronting him because mm-hmm. he's got that the nuclear option in his back pocket right and because of that nuclear options in the back pocket it's clear the west's plan is well if we just do overwhelming abs- you know like like we've never seen sanctions constricting you can't even play as the russian team in fifa <laughs> like <laughs> that type of stuff like that at least it feels like we're in the conflict, even if we're not directly. And it makes the toll of this conflict, if it goes on for a while, feel like the, if Russia was fighting the West directly. Because uh, fr- fr- frankly, it's almost like they are at this point. But I, I would say, though, on that note, then something I wanted to touch on, too, is I don't I don't think it's going to be over in a month. I keep seeing these reporters like, hopefully this will be over in a month. And I'm like, guys, what? How many times do we need to see a conflict and go, we'll be back by Christmas? <laughs> like, we're not right. going to be back by Christmas once you start something 
And, and even if something ended, like I'll just say it, like the harshness of this invasion, Ukraine's not going to go, oh, we lost. Well, we're friends again. No, this is going to be decades of resentment because of the harshness of this campaign on them. So this is something I think the entire world's going to be dealing with for a long time. And, and to and not and not to sound detached emotionally, but to try to bring it on subject to this, like how I, I see this going on for at least a year, massive disruptions to vary it. Like, I mean, at the very least the food production out of Ukraine is going to affect everything with that going down. How do you think oh God, it's, I, I going to sound real bad. How do you think this will affect prices though, moving forward? Like, do you think we're seeing shortages improve? We're seeing prices falling down pretty consistently here every week. Do you think they're, this is going to be bad enough to make them kind of stall where they're at soon? Or do you think it's because of how bad the shortages were before, just literally not enough stuff that it's still going to get better in that aspect, even if like gas prices rise? Yeah, uh, that's whew, that's a good one. I know. Um, it's hard to imagine things getting a lot worse than where they were in terms of supply shortage. Um because then, I mean, the whole world was kind of halted mm-hmm. through through COVID. I mean, you had literal production stops on not just, you know, uh, not just with chips and, and that whole supply chain, um, but everything, right? So everything got affected, cars, uh, transportation, like just every, every aspect of human life, there was some kind of delay or... or um, shortage associated mm-hmm. with it that we're still trying to recover from. Um, so in that aspect, I don't think um, this conflict in this, in, you know, forbid it gets way out of hand. It's mm-hmm. just going to stop the world from continuing to produce mm-hmm. as best as it can, um, find alternate suppliers, things like that. So, so I, I, this may, may be uh, just kind of my own naive, uh, point of view so maybe I, I don't understand the economics as well well i'm talking to you so i'd love to hear what yours is <laughs> yeah so uh unless this has the potential to make everything stop the way covid did i ha- i don't see it being worse yeah so from that i perspective. I'm, I'm at least hopeful that you know uh prices are going to recover in some capacity um i think we're still going to have some shortages, we're still going to have some trickle down of the logistics of moving things around, especially with fuel prices um, affected. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not a whole hard stop the way COVID was. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like, I guess now that you put it that way, like if it's mostly about the gas prices, what's the graphics card that was priced ludicrously high for what people wanted it to cost, be- mostly because of the shipping, 6500 XT. Like, you know, yeah. if you take what used to be $5 ship and make it $30, that makes a, you know, $170 card, 200. Yeah. So I think you're, I, it's funny. I think next gen, we're more of this truncation of the high end will be as profitable to make again at like a thousand dollars as it was last gen. But I, again, $200 is just kicked. It, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's going to continue to be pretty bad. I think in that realm. Yeah. I, I guess I would say this. I, 
I'm hopeful that um, supply will get better. I don't know that pricing will be any different, right? Well, that's a good point, too. Those are two different yeah. things. We're seeing supply. Like, what do you want? We can go buy it on Newegg right now. It's just the pricing's not what we yeah. want it to be at. Yeah. So that that's kind of the, the vision, the, the future I, I'm seeing in my head, at least, is just like, yeah, you'd probably be able to go buy a card, but it's probably not going to be the price that we were hoping you would want or hope for. QH Freddy writes in, he says, there's been a lot of noise lately regarding bringing manufacturing best back to Western soil, but most of that is focused only on high-end semiconductor fabbing. What about less exciting stuff, passive components, PCBs, assembly, or even more basic things like raw and processed materials needed for the manufacturing? How much can we really reduce our reliance on foreign economies? And, and I think this is a very good question and point he's touching on because in talking to some of my contacts, putting together like the bomb cost for Ampere, and then especially recently the RTX 3050 and 6500 XT, a lot, it's not the silicon guys. It's all of the heat sink manufacturers in China that just aren't in the U.S. Yeah, um, so that, that's, a, that's a good question. I think it really highlights uh, how global globalization is you know, every every decade, it gets even more interconnected in in ways that that uh, we never think about. Uh, COVID was kind of the the big stress test on that, and we saw tons of industries kind of fall to their knees in terms of production um, because we rely um, on so much from uh, foreign foreign produced materials uh, and foreign assembly and and yeah, it's hard to say anything's made any one place anymore. And, you know, the United States, um, you know, we still have a good amount of chip fabs here, stuff like that. Um, Intel still does a lot of fabbing here, Samsung, you know, Texas Instruments. Plus, there's a lot of boutique fabs that do things that aren't high-density mm -hmm. high um, logic. You know, there's there's other fabs um, for, like, optical sensors and uh, power power transistors, FETs, uh, things like that that go into your power supplies. And um, so, so not all of it, all, not all the fabbing capacity has to be, you know, cutting edge, smallest transistors you can get away with. Um, in, in some, in fact, in some designs, that's not even desirable. Uh, you want bigger transistors for their properties. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the United States is in, a, is in a good spot to kind of realize what it can do to move more manufacturing here it's not like our manufacturing base is non-existent mm -hmm. um the real thing is what happens in the world if some kind of political or something happens that you know all of our shipments from southeast asia just cease if it was just an abrupt thing mm -hmm. um then then how good is the united states what kind of position are they in, in i'd say not of, good for at least a year <laughs> Yeah, and and a lot of that has to do with um, some of the more uh, non-specialized goods. I, mm -hmm. I would say, like um, just building like heat sinks and machine parts and stuff like that. Uh, we don't do it in the volume, uh, say that China does for for kind of these commodity things that we need to put electronics together. Um, you know, resistors, capacitors, just all that stuff. We don't we don't push that out in volume. One big part of that is uh, just the nature of capitalism. Uh, the work tends to go where where the labor is cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
electronics manufacturing was really big, heavy in Japan. Um, and then it moved to China. And I think even at some point, it's its days in China are numbered and it's going to move to, to yeah, I think it's even being explored. Well, it's so automated now, right? That you yeah. almost wonder. Of where is this going to go? Um, you know, India, Vietnam, Indonesia. There, there's already movements of certain manufacturing stuff even moving out of China to find ever cheaper labor and, mm. and things like that. So so part of it is is labor, um, and part of it is also just what materials do you need. Um, Asia is a huge continent. Um, China is a huge supplier of rare earth metals and things like that. So mm -hmm. as far as having all the stuff they need to support a manufacturing uh, industry, uh, th that's very much to their advantage. So um, moving stuff back to the United States, I think in a way – uh, that is usable volume uh, is going to be hard. Right. It sounds like it's kind of inevitable that a lot of it starts moving to the West now and out in South America all over, you know, besides just Asia, Southeast Asia. But that if there was an abrupt cutoff to it, <laughs> you know, anytime in the next five years, we won't be done transitioning a lot of it. And and part of that, part of uh, that is just going to be, you know, should that kind of worst scenario happen where we're in some kind of conflict or otherwise we're cut off from those supply chains, um, the way we live our lives is going to have to be different anyway. Mm -hmm. um, because all of that manufacturing capacity that we do have in the United States will probably get focused on military or other, you know, essential, essential, things. essential needs before it ever goes back to consumer devices, if ever. I think for a few years during World War II, the in the U.S., you literally couldn't buy a new car. Like they just didn't make them. It's like we're too busy making tanks and airplanes. Yeah. So I would imagine something similar would happen, where the manufacturing capacity that does exist, it's going to be busy not making consumer goods anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, Timo H writes in. He says regarding age-old things in geopolitics and manufacturing, is there any danger energy, material-heavy, and critical industries like silicon are in danger of running out of fuel, water, the raw material itself, cooling, or other parts, either by prices being too volatile or some locations cutting off supply to other places due to political problems and change priorities? I don't believe the U.S., for example, is in much danger right now, but the silicon industry itself seems very vulnerable, both from a supply chain complexity viewpoint. And needing those raw materials or products supplied from only a very few places in the world. From watching American news, it seems like there's a lot of America first talk going on right now. But what does that mean to gamers, scientists, and others in Europe or Southeast Asia? Do these areas have enough political capital to ensure availability of those products for themselves? Which is something I think not enough people bring up is like anytime America complains, Europe's like, you know, double complaining about these issues. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I guess... You already touched on a lot of that, I think. But. Yeah, I think we, we already touched on a lot of that. Um, as but like far... silicon itself, and like, I don't know if you have any idea of like the materials needed. No. Um, I, so I, I, I'm not aware, at least I don't track like mm -hmm. who the suppliers are there out there for wafers and stuff. Um, the lithography process itself can be pretty complex um, in terms of the chemistry involved and what types of, uh, you know, different chemicals and elements you need to source for it. Um, 
right. the, I'm looking it up. The biggest exporters of silicon for manufacturing chips is Russia and Brazil. Okay. So. So, I mean, I would imagine we could spin those industries up if need be. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, w- one thing to think about is I don't know how much of like rare, uh, rare earth metals is kind of one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. And there's so many of them. And what, what kind of exotic things do you need to build to build chips? Um, mm-hmm. So y- you'd have to get into the specifics of any uh, process to really understand, you know, what what the uh, high dollar limited items are. But uh, especially with like um, RF engineering and, and communication stuff, uh, rare earth metals, uh, to, except especially in like modems in your cell phone and stuff like that. Yeah, when you say are, RF, you mean radio frequency for yeah, those listening. Yeah, so RF or high frequency um, type stuff. Yeah, you, you need rare earth metals to make them as compact and uh, as performant as the consumer expects them to be um so if you suddenly don't have access to those it's like well can you even build you know an iphone anymore uh you 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 might have to actually just make some compromises on what products can even do um and so there's this thing that happens in in technology and i think it's it's that 80 20 rule again Mm -hmm. uh, that i mentioned earlier a good analogy is uh the energy sector and electric cars and um, even things like solar panels, it's like, yeah, this energy is free and it's cheap. And then it's like, yeah, we'll just push the efficiency a lot higher and higher. And then we'll totally rid our dependence on oil. But it's like to push the efficiency of battery tech and to push the efficiency of uh, solar cells to an extreme level usually requires exotic materials and exotic manufacturing to the point where the benefits of it being cheap and plentiful and easy get eroded those then become very fragile things mm-hmm. to produce. And we've kind of already done that in to our society where a lot of our consumer products are already fragile in terms of supply chain. And our, ex- our expectations for them as products are already reliant on things that are short in supply and um, not easy to get. So... If you were to re-stand up manufacturing, I think a lot of it would be a step back technologically in a lot of ways because it's just mm-hmm. hey, we don't we don't have this rare. We literally metal. don't have it, so yeah. we need to find a new way to make screens. We, either we find a new material that can do it, or you know, or your product is fifty percent bigger because you know I have to put two radios in it now because the one radio can't do both both functions now. All right, so I want to start winding down with some final reader mails here. Um, this one's a little related to what we were just talking about. Clean Sweep writes in, and he says, Hey, Tom and Matt, I'm interested in hearing more about the challenges of putting computer hardware in aerospace stuff, like planes and satellites. I remember hearing somewhere, maybe even here on Broken Silicon, actually, that a lot of the newer, smaller foundry nodes are vulnerable to the kinds of radiation that you find in outer space. Besides that, in the G-forces involved in being and going beyond supersonic speeds. What other things do aerospace engineers have to think about when incorporating computer hardware to be put in space? Okay, yeah, so that's a that's a good question. Um, space is a fun fun place to work uh, engineering projects because it makes you think about a bunch of different stuff that you wouldn't on the ground. Um, so specifically with c- computing power, 
one thing you really have to consider, especially in building satellite payloads or um, I'm sure even aircraft is choose the computer that's right for the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mean by that is you're not going to slap an i7 or <laughs> Horizon into a satellite unless you need that throughput. So almost all the computers that are going in satellites and, and aircraft, they're very specifically chosen for how they perform. And it's kind of you, it's a less is more more type thing is kind of the, the better way to go about it. You only want to put as much computing power in there as you need. Mm-hmm. And you only want it to consume as much power as you've budgeted for. And so uh, a lot of the ways we think about computing of just like, oh, let's get the next best thing every time something new comes out. It's really not that way uh, for for space and, and aero. It's really about does this thing fit a, a need? The, the utility argument is is at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Literally, if it doesn't add enough utility, then we don't want it. Um, so there, there really is no rush to put uh, the next greatest, best CPU in a spacecraft unless the mission dictates that you need it or the mission fails type thing. You know, one thing I've read recently in a couple articles is that typically a lot of the computers put in spaceships, satellites are based on lithography from several generations ago. Some of that's about the stability, the ease of use. Also, these projects take many years to be done. So it's like, whatever, that's what we designed five years ago. That's what they had. But I've also heard that there's something with just the reliability of the newer nodes long term isn't there that silicon at five nanometer it's never really been an issue before when i troubleshoot pcs it's like i just assume the intel or amd processor hasn't broke it's the motherboard or ram or Mm -hmm. something you know but i've heard that once we get to five nanometer it's like no your phone's gonna break in three years because the silicon is gonna just wear out from the voltage usage yeah i think as um just pc consumers and general electronics consumers um we've always kind of had it in our mind that we're going to reach obsolescence before we reach failure Mm-hmm. in terms of uh, the silicon. Um, so, uh, and and yeah, I, I would be interested to see how that changes as we get to these smaller nodes, um, if it's something you have to think about. I mean, <laughs> it's, we're sure throwing in a lot of things to think about when buying a, a computer. Yeah, like you uh, buy an RDNA 3 or maybe 4 nanometer, 3 nanometer RDNA 4 chip, and you're like, hey, I know this is too grand, and you, it's like you see these people, oh, I'm going to keep it for five years. No, you're not. Not if you mine with it, because it's going to wear out in one year now. Unlike other, I mean, I've had 28 nanometer chips that just, they they can they could mine for another 10 years probably. <laughs> right. But um, going back to the, the space thing, yeah, a lot of times uh, lower or bigger featured transistors are desirable because they um, require more energy to switch states. And that's actually beneficial in space. Like when you're building a computer and you just want to do things as efficiently as possible, um, you don't want to spend a lot of energy getting a transistor to switch its state. Mm -hmm. Um, But in space where you're getting bombarded by radiation, you don't want stray radiation getting a transistor to switch its state. And one way to do that is if the transistor is bigger, it requires more energy. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you get more radiation resiliency that way. Um, they also go to great lengths to, uh, you know, uh, do radiation shielding on the packaging to make sure that it can survive a certain level of energetic particle bombardment. Um, 
And they're probably also more vigorously tested in terms of like vibration and temperature stability mm -hmm. and, and things like that. So it's going to depend on the mission, um, what ship you choose. Uh, a, a big word for a lot of the spacecraft and, and aerospace industry is um, legacy. Mm -hmm. Choosing parts that have flown in past missions and are proven um, as opposed to new things that could go wrong. And it takes a long time to build a, a reliable, proven platform for the air or space. Which and again, so, let's be clear about what reliable means here. We're not saying it lasts five years. We're saying the satellite that we're sending to Pluto lasts 50. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at look at how long Voyagers lasted. Um, some of these Mars rovers have far outlasted their useful mission time. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's hoping that the uh, James Webb telescope is going to outlast, be able to, one, have enough fuel to, to do its mission, but... But yeah, so longevity in space, it's like when you're spending so much money on a, on a project, it, it has to work. You, you're not going to take a lot of risk on new technologies. Um, and you're not going to, you're going to put something new unless it really enables you to do something cool mm -hmm. um, and, and needed. I think that's what a lot of people miss about like, oh, why doesn't the new Mars rover have a 4K camera on it and stuff like <laughs> that? It's like, well, it's, unless it's enabling something for science that's really important, it's literally mm -hmm. just adding risk to the rest of the mission. Well, and you can see this in military vehicles as well. You look at like the footage out of a attack helicopter and it looks horrible clarity, but it has thermal sights and it can see a dot. And that's actually all it needs to see to identify a target. Yeah, and exactly. And, um, you know, if the computer, as long as the computer has what it needs to track its target in terms of a targeting system, um, how well you can see it is not how well it's tracking. Mm -hmm. uh, so so yeah um there's there's a, a disconnect it's that whole utility thing of what we're used to as consumers things looking prettier and shinier and high resolution i mean we waste so much computing power just just so yeah. that you, you know your phone is showing you pretty 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 notifications and <laughs> we spend so much computation power on just it looking pretty when the the fundamentals of the computing that's going on underneath are actually pretty light in comparison to just hey it looks nice i mean yeah how much how many of the computational power is just pulling out a higher res image for an icon on a website when mm -hmm. you know <laughs> yeah and the, and the text is like nothing mm -hmm. yeah okay so i'm gonna i have one more reader mail here to wrap this up luke mines writes any Cicillo, matt and tom what sort of career tracks are possible in the fields of working with fpgas and pcv design Sure, a lot. Because I have an interest here, and aside from requiring an electrical engineering degree, I'm not too sure what the career opportunities and working conditions would look like. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that at all. Sure. So, um, yeah, electrical engineering degree definitely helps. Um, as far as PCB design, you could get started today. Um, mm -hmm. You can go online. There are free CAD tools for for doing uh, PCB design. I know Eagle CAD is one of them. Uh, there's another software called Circuit Studio if you could look at that has a free version. Um, but you could get started today. Uh, what's been kind of nice is uh, with kind of the, the, the boom of the makerspace and things like that is the amount of open source designs you can go look at and download has really and and the tools that are available for just hobbyists at home to do circuit design and and build 
has really exploded. So there's no shortage of stuff that you can go access on the web, get a design for, and start practicing building PCBs today. Um, so I mean, I did some PCB design even as a mechanical engineer, you know. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's probably something a good amount of engineers bump up into at some point, especially in electrical and mechanical engineering. Um, I, there's not really, um, at least my experience going through school, it was never like, a, hey, take this track and you'll get really good at PCP design. There's definitely like a course here and there, but a lot of it's like any tool. Uh, mm -hmm. Even getting good at something like Photoshop or, or whatever, you need to spend time with the tool. And employers are really going to care that you've spent time with the tool and you can do the certain things with the tool. Um, so start getting experience with those tools. Um, that's going to be a lot more valuable than, than just saying, hey, I took a course. It's like, no, look at these things I built. Um, mm -hmm. You know. Uh, so that's very valuable. As far as FPGA stuff, um, there are probably some FPGA boards that are within the price point uh, for hobbyists to start playing with. Um, there are definitely, uh, some other device. There's another class of devices called a CPLD, uh, CMOS programmable logic device. It's kind of in a similar vein of an FPGA, but they're cheap enough that you could, um, buy them and get started with like hardware descriptor languages and building little digital circuits on your own at home. Um, you'd probably encounter one if you took a digital design class in an, in an electrical, electrical engineering course. Um, but as far as applying FPGAs, if you want to get into a field where they're used often, uh, communications mm. is a good thing to go into. So what radio type of communication? What type like, of communications? Like, it's not like literally I got a degree in communications. That's a very oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I mean more like radios. Yeah. Building building 5G or SATCOM or um, those kinds of things. Uh, get into digital design and chip verification like design verification, digital design, you're most always going to run into FPGAs. Um, yeah, I'd say th those would be, the, if you do get into electrical engineering, that's that's where you'd want to probably focus. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't uh, I can't give any advice on that there, but uh, I knew you said you wanted to answer any questions that touch on that type of stuff if they came up. And, and, and sure. if you're a, a real masochist, you can go into RF design, and that's a whole other layer of PCB design that is really high sought after. And mm -hmm. so that would be like building antenna structures and, and radios uh, for things like iPhones and uh, SATCOM, like phased array antennas. Starlink antenna is a good example of what an RF engineer would do. Like that stuff is very, uh, there's a very big need in that market, mm -hmm. but it's also very challenging. So you, you have to really, really but is that it. one of those things where if you did that, it would apply to so many other things connected to it as well. They're like, well, he can do this so he can work on this type of a uh, circuit as well, for sure. Yeah. You, you definitely will over time become more well-rounded. Um, I kind of feel like I, in my career, I touched enough of anything to kind of know where to start on almost anything. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm not super proficient at everything, but, but, um, yeah, uh, the, the, the hardest job to get is always your first. I feel like after that, getting your foot through the door is easier as you start to accumulate skills and accomplishments. So, um, EE is a big field. Uh, uh, another 
another benefit of it is if you get bored with what you're doing, um, it's so wide, you just hop on over to something else. I mean, yeah, there's, and that's one of those staple engineering degrees as well that applies to, it's like that mechanical and then probably industrial. It's like, if you have one of those degrees, there's about a dozen things you can do, honestly, or, or even splice into other paths from it too. Um, and you know, I guess the only advice I'd add on to that is if you do go into electrical engineering with a assumption that you want to do this with that degree, don't be afraid if you find out you're better or like something else more that you can use that degree for, which happens to, I think actually most engineers, to be honest, where he's like, oh, I went, I got this degree to do this, but it turns out I actually like working on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know a lot of people who have gone to school for one thing and totally pivoted to something else or, you know, even myself, I, you don't really know what's out there till you get immersed in it and you don't know what you're going to like until you experience it. So yeah, have an open mind about, about what makes you happy and um, the things you're interested in. And I think as long as you're, you're interested and immersed, uh, you, you'll be happy, at least in employment and engineering. I've been, I've been pretty happy. Well, I don't know if there's anything else you want to discuss. I, as I feared, we ended up talking for a very long time with the smorgasbord of uh, subjects that I found we could touch on. And I think we touched on most or if not all of them. Um, I guess, you know, you're an anonymous guest. Is there, <laughs> I have to ask since you're on, man, is there anything you want to plug? <laughs> anything you want to tell? <laughs> could be anything. No, actually, uh, not, not really. I, I, was mostly just here for engaging conversation and I think we had that. So yeah, I, I I think I'm different from a lot of your guests, right? I'm not, I don't come from specific industry or or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. I hope the audience uh, found it entertaining and yeah. I'm sure they did. Um, But I guess then the only other thing to say is as usual, you know, thanks for listening. Uh, Subscribe to broken Silicon on your podcast app of choice. Give us a review. Subscribe to the Moore's Laws at YouTube channel. Ring the bell button. Tell your friends about us. Support us on Patreon if you can to ask us questions. Get ad-free versions of the shows. Get exclusive podcasts like Die Shrink. Talk with us, uh, both the community and me, after content comes out on the Discord. And so much more. Can't do this without our patrons. And otherwise, stay safe out there, everybody. And uh, thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Laws Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcasts, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan. Audio editing by Gerard Cortez and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, 
please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Mellon, Anthony Greffa, Dale Russell, Jeremy Scalen, Loophole 35, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Khwari, Eric Osborne, Jeff Sedler, Andre Jacques, Sarcastro, Terrence Harrod, Drita Full, Phil S, D31337 Antics, Jackson A. Miller, Jesse Jaskowiak, Josh Law, Brandon, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Gaiman Since Reagan, Fatboy Deseru, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA, Nathan Mose, Cole Attic, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, F7GOS, Matthew Landavazu, My Name is Nobody, Judson N. Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Rentero Matsuka, John Jameson, Sam Benzel, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Ranner, Chris Licata, Michael Medee, Meyer Techrance. Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, 3DS Boy 08, Dominique Koch, Stefan, Original Ross, Sandy Garrido Saunderson, Joachim Hagen, Teak Autumn, Sol Carner, Michael Casa, Delmaine Peterson, Z Jits, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Hexapuma, Sa- Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Zutsu Taylor, Trevor Powers, Stu, Alania, Nanya, Daniel Nishpal, Franco Frederick, Dan Gonowski, Ian Clifford, Axel Cisneros, Layton Perry, Joseph Kerman, Brett Summers, Blake, Donovan Russell, Noah Nicolella, Zlicky, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoes Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Bruja, Jeremy So, Mitchell Pell, Sylvanos, Eddie Del Castile, Jacob Laster, Luis Correa, Deke, Chris P. Erbachin, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dew23, Brian Ringelman, Justin Gower, Caillou Mark Kelly, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Gabe Langer, Ronnie, DNA Tech, Michael Deaton, MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Chrysantine, My Sharona, Y. Trui, Rowan, William W. Draper, ARS, Spamptum G. Spamptum, Henry Shanks, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amy Will Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, R. Pete Sharma, Meat and Pork, Jimmy NG, Maz, Matthew Lazier, Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Masink, Muhammad, Jean Devant, Post Media, Sean Ashmont, Daniel Dewar, Stefan Jang, JSMMH, Georgie Kastadinov, PCBs22, Reginald Ari, Narethiel, Ivan, Charles Russell, Haubuma, Arkarsh Edithia, The Grid, Andrew S., Chris Rich, Powell Zagartowski, Desist, Zabbeat03, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>